0: And welcome to Splatter Chatter, where October never dies, particularly since it is October mm-hmm. right now. My name is Mr. Craigers. I'm one of the hosts of Splatter Chatter.
1: I am Miss Malmoy. I'm the other host.
0: Absolutely. And this is episode 91, mm-hmm.
1: wherein we will be having
0: a discussion about the history of horror movies.
1: Yeah. If uh, anyone hasn't noticed, Mr. Kregers has put up what it seems to be a very popular blog series um, on the history of horror movies. And I have purposefully stayed away from them so he can tell me live and somewhat in-person uh,
0: the <laughs> details are. As live and in-person as we can get living yeah, in but soon
1: place. we will be live and in-person.
0: That's true because um, we, Ms. Mel and I, are actually going to be spending Halloween together.
1: Yeah, for the first time in a while.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about that. I was like, okay, we have we've spent a number of Halloween's together, but then I was like, but I think it's been a moment because because well, Halloween's you know.
1: followed like well, the thing happened, and then before that, <laughs> Halloween has fallen like on like Wednesdays. Right. And, so, and so it was like, okay, well, that's not gonna work. I truly think the last one was the one where we went to Colleen's and went to when as twin peaks characters i think you're right i think it was like 2017 or 2018 yeah and then because then there was
0: you came down for the hocus pocus party Mm -hmm. but that wasn't Halloween weekend no that was like like, a random
1: october weekend i think yeah
0: and i want to say that was two years ago three two i don't know (laughs) so it's definitely been a minute um And that's coming up, which is very exciting. We're looking Mm -hmm. forward to that and doing spooky activities together. Um, And of course, it's prime spooky season right now.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, What spooky things have you been up to? What have you been reading and watching to get
1: Um, in the mood? Watched uh, Midnight Mass, Mm. obviously. Very good. So good. Incredible. Um, I'll save most of my comments on that because I'm sure one day we'll want to do like a (laughs) Flanagan. Oh, episode plus they just announced um what i assume is going to be the haunting of usher house (laughs) yeah right um but yeah he's doing midnight club midnight club yeah so he's got a lot going on but i watched that i read through the first couple books in my fall book pile just finished um october country Nice. Um, crushing through the troop, really. Um, it's a. It's one of those books that you just want to keep reading. Um, very good. Very spooky. Very gross. Oh. Um. Uh. Watched VHS ninety four. Um, oh, how was that? It was good. I still really prefer the first one because I just love the way that they use the conceit in that of like the VHS tapes. Like now, it's like. Yeah, like I really appreciate it being an anthology and having these self-contained stories, but I feel like I don't need the the like wraparound story for that. Mm. Um, but the stories themselves are pretty good. Um, I would say what one was my favorite. I didn't love the first one. Um, the anchor one is like the third one. That's the one I think most people are talking about, which is sort of like the mad scientist one.
0: Okay, I feel like I've seen stuff on Twitter.
1: (laughs) It just keeps going. (laughs) Like, truly, you're just like, how can this keep going? Um, But no, it was pretty good. I also watched Seance. Me too. Yeah, (laughs) which I enjoyed. I didn't, you know, I didn't think it was like groundbreaking or anything, but I thought it was fun. It's fun. Um,
0: The third act got a little, felt like it was losing some steam. Yeah,
1: I feel like. My thinking on it was, I thought the concept of was interesting in terms of what ended up happening, but I also was like, why ghosts then? Like the ghosts yeah. are still real. <laughs> right. Like, incidentally that part was a little, felt a little odd to me, but... um, And you know, this person comes out of nowhere being the character that they are and they're like, you know this is who I am and this is the sudden 11th hour backstory and I was like okay but yeah, um
0: it was like, wait a minute what
1: yeah <laughs> who are you um but no I found it to be fun
0: um, yeah it was fun
1: I think I love that
0: you know any sort of like isolated snowbound yeah story.
1: yeah because I, I appreciate too like the um audacity to kind of have things not be during like the fall and mm-hmm. Halloween, because it takes place during, like, what, like, the beginning of the second semester at the boarding yeah. school.
0: I think it's, like, February or something, I say yeah. at one point. Yeah.
1: So I appreciate when things do that. Um, But, yeah, and then, you know, I just did my, my thing, watched some Scream the other night, watched some... Nice. The Fog. trailer coming up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I assume it's going to be coming out with Halloween Kills. I think so.
0: And I know that on... They were doing that anniversary screening or whatever of the first movie mm-hmm. this past weekend, and I think they did the trailer for it there, if you guys
1: nice. I um, Somebody was wearing one at a movie event I went to. It was a shirt. It was a black shirt that said in the green font based on the Woodsboro mur- murders by Gale Weathers. Weathers. And I'm like, I kind of really want that shirt. <laughs> Me too. You- I've seen that before. The only reputable place where I've seen that on clothes only does it on hats. So so I'm like, I need to, Uh, I need to find the shirt version, but.
0: Yeah. I've, I've seen that floating around too. And I'm like, I don't, where does this come from? I want one.
1: Yeah. Um, Oh my God. And then I don't know if I told you that that same screening, I was wearing my directed by David Lynch t-shirt, like, you know, the the twin, the Twin Peaks one Mm -hmm. and the guy at the concession stand was like, well, what, what was is there something on the back? <gasps> and I was like, I, "It's a, it's a shirt. It's you're a like, joke." Yeah, you're like, I don't know how to how to explain. I I'm not going to explain, explain my shirt to you. Yeah. Also, I cannot be the only one wearing weird shirts. Yeah, your... like, can
0: Can I just get my popcorn? Yeah, I was like, uh, yeah. God. Yeah, um, I do like that shirt a lot. Yeah, it's a good shirt. Um, what have you been up to? What have I been up to? Um, I, well, I bought some shirts from Fright Rags the other day. Oh,
1: yes. Yeah. So you've been hitting them up.
0: Yeah. I, what did I get from them? I have, um, I got a cool Jaw shirt from them now. I have, um, oh, the one I was really excited about. Um, it's the slaughtered lamb logo from American Werewolf in London.
1: Oh, yes. I remember we were debating about which one you should get.
0: Yeah. So I ended up getting that one, which is good. I also got they had the special for Halloween too, the Haddonfield Memorial jacket
2: mm-hmm. that
0: Jimmy wears. They were selling those. They're, it's a really nice jacket. Mm-hmm. And I got that. Um Nice. so i'm like it needs to be much colder here so i can start wearing that jacket
1: today is pretty i mean it it started to warm up throughout the day but it's been i've been like sleeping with the windows open and it's been pretty chilly Yeah, it's definitely
0: starting to here today is was chillyish. i was pretty happy i had you know the balcony open earlier
2: mm-hmm.
0: um but yeah uh midnight mass really really liked it um love that he was like yeah i don't have to do ghosts (laughs) i don't
1: know i guess it's spoilers to i can do blank
0: right i can do blank (laughs) um and of course just like also it was just like it was beautiful and it was heartbreaking
1: no it was interesting watching it twice and seeing certain things and i'm like maybe this time like it's kind of like when you rewatch the titanic and you're like maybe
3: maybe they won't <laughs> yeah um but
1: yeah,
0: yeah no. i could see that yeah um yeah great show um i've also been watching the new season of creep show oh which yes is fun um over on shutter good stuff um also over on shutter they have the newest season of slasher which I'm, i haven't finished yet mm-hmm. but because i haven't Super actually loved this newest season. Mm-hmm. But it's okay. Yeah. Um what else have I been? I've, yeah, I've been watching some movies, seance. Um oh, I finally saw Superhost. Oh, what'd you Four
1: think? Two, it was fun. Yeah. What did you think yeah. of the multiple twists by the end? Yeah. I was like, oh, oh. Oh, oh, okay. Oh, I feel like one would have done it, but that's fine.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think only one was needed. That just kind of kept popping along. But yeah, it was fun. Um, That oh man, the they were an annoying couple,
1: though. They were an annoying couple. She was a really good actress, the uh, host. She
0: was really good. She was really good. And then Barbara Crampton was there for a little bit. (laughs) I was like, okay,
1: yeah. Um. Yeah, that couple. I feel like was purposefully annoying so that you wouldn't feel bad
0: yeah about the terrible things that happened to them
1: yeah because i'm just they're like oh yeah like we're not getting any views or we're getting demonetized like just things that truly it was like who cares yeah it's like do you hear yourself right now like get a real job no offense to the vloggers out there but
0: yeah but also to these people (laughs) just these people if they're like if they are you know vloggers and influencers like these people then yeah offense yeah yeah but yeah it was fun um oh I finally saw psycho Goreman. okay did not live up to the hype for me mm-hmm. um but I know it's a ton of people's favorites from this year. Um uh, oh I read um I just finished Final Girl Support Group. Yeah you didn't love it. I didn't love it. It's it was fine. I mean, like you know, it was it's solidly written. Grady Hendrix can tell a story, mm. um, and like all of the various nods to different slashers and final girls are really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's like some deep cut stuff in there for people that that really know their slashers, so that was cool. But um, in the end. It was a story that's already been done mm-hmm. much better in another, like self-referential, slasher homage.
2: Yeah,
0: and I was like, "Oh, this is a either a glaring oversight, which doesn't seem possible, or just like hoping I don't that know. nobody saw." Like- yeah, <laughs> so it was very, it was very weird to me, and I don't know. I think. With a story like that, you know, where you're taking on the idea of the final girl and the slasher and, I don't know, all of its cliches and tropes. Like, you have to be really, really clever yeah, if you want to say something new. And it just wasn't as clever as I wanted it to be.
1: I feel like it got a lot of hype, but I don't know. I feel like there's an interesting sort of boom right now in, like, slasher novels. Because mm-hmm. there's that. There's My Heart is a Chainsaw just came out by Stephen yeah. Jones. Um, before that, it was, I think it was called Just Final Girls.
0: By Riley Sager? Yeah. Yeah. And also his latest one, which I also read, Survive the Night, has some slasher elements to mm-hmm. it. Because it involves a, a serial killer um yeah there's there's definitely a boom in in slashers right now I think we're in kind of like a slasher renaissance um interesting which is interesting but I think it's worth the read it was just you know yeah I definitely would love to read My Heart is a Chainsaw soon that seems to be getting good reviews um also Elvira's memoir yeah would be a cool read
3: Uh, She's
1: always been a, uh, a, I feel, a a queer icon, and now it's just really... Now it's just confirmed. Everyone's just like, get her, you know, like, putting her in the chair.
0: Yeah, that's that's what we're all doing with Elvira (laughs) right now. And she has been, like, um, kind of a blind spot for me, actually, Mm -hmm. in horror. Like, I obviously know her, and I've seen, you know, some of her stuff, but, like, not nearly as much. Yeah. So
1: well, I think she was a little bit before our time too.
0: She was, and then like you know, by the time that we were able, I feel like to really explore horror on our own, it was tougher to find
1: her mm-hmm.
0: things out there. Yeah, but yeah, no, that's exciting. Yeah, and then um, yeah, I don't know, just watching, you know, rewatching some stuff and and watching some you know things here and there. Um, I watched um the new Netflix ones um no one gets out alive and uh there's someone inside your house
1: I'm interested in there's someone inside your house because I didn't read the book but I remember when the book came out and I was interested in its premise
0: yeah um they were both they are both fine they're both mm-hmm. fun I think
1: yeah oh and um I mean it's kind of more horror adjacent because I think it's more of like a mystery thriller but um one of us is lying just came out
0: oh yeah i read the book
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it's now a
0: show on hulu? hulu i think yeah that sounds right yeah um yeah but again like it's it's like approaching that line and like playing with slasher tropes and like mm-hmm. mystery sort of you know
1: like who's the killer
0: yeah, exactly. That's so big right now. Because
1: when I was rewatching Scream, I I love nothing more than that woman behind Randy in the in the blockbuster, the video. who's like truly very responsive to everything he's saying. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, there's always some bullshit reason to kill your girlfriend, and she like looks up, and, <laughs> and she's like out of focus. But yeah, I was like, the, the best part is that like the film does not acknowledge her yeah.
0: in any way. But she is like, I am here.
1: I am here. I am and sharing I
0: am this. Earning my $50 a day as the eavesdropping extra. <laughs> yeah.
1: I do love it.
0: Yeah, I like that a lot.
1: Everyone's a suspect. Everyone's a suspect. Oh, man. I mean,
0: how jazzed are you for the new screen? Like, honestly. I'm excited. I mean, I'm a little I'm bit so worried excited.
1: about it coming out in January, but that's not going to stop me from seeing it. Mm-hmm. yeah it's weird that
0: january was chosen yeah like
1: but there's some good stuff like like annihilation came out in february so like yeah it feels
3: like
0: it feels like the traditional january dumping ground is like trying to be i don't know reclaimed
1: yeah so we'll see i mean i feel like when you have something like Scream 5, like a studio, I'll be like, okay, we'll make it if, you know, and here's when we'll put it out. Like, I could see that being sort of a studio move, not necessarily based on content, but just because they're not sure if there's an audience for it.
0: Yeah, Um, that's true. And I mean, honestly, Scream 4 didn't necessarily smash at the box office. No, I think it was,
1: wasn't it supposed to kick off like a new trilogy and they just... Yeah, kind of put that on the back burner because it didn't do great
0: yeah they were like oh we're not sure about this and then like kind of when it seemed like they were just going to go ahead and do it and do the version of scream 5 from back then is when wes craven died mm-hmm. and so then it was like wow
1: yeah but no i am very excited to because everyone's back pretty much everyone who's still yeah. alive.
3: <laughs> yeah right yeah
0: Big three are back. Um, Deputy Judy will be back. Deputy Judy. (laughs) (laughs) Breakout star. Breakout star. The question is, will her lemon squares be back? Oh, my God. And will they still
1: taste like ass? I truly need to rewatch Scream 4 because, like, it's very normal for me to rewatch Scream 1, obviously, or Scream. And, like, maybe go into Scream 2. Occasionally, I'll watch Scream 3 but i forget about scream 4.
0: <laughs> you don't always go back to yeah. 4. Yeah. I yeah, that's so weird. Like if i'm ever in a mood to rewatch anything from scream, i feel like yeah, i go to the first one and then like naturally a couple of days later i'll be like okay, well scream 2.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And then i'll be like yeah, all right, scream 3. And then i I don't really think okay, now scream 4. Yeah. But then, like in separate times of my life, I'll be like, I want to watch Scream 4. Yeah. And I'll watch that without having watched any of the others. Right. So yeah. it's interesting. We'll see where uh, the new one fits. Scream. Yeah. I know it's called Scream, I, I, but I just still think of it as Scream 5.
1: Scream 5, the Scream Inning,
0: <laughs> where there's time travel
1: this <laughs> time they introduced time travel. yeah i forgot which one was it the fourth one yeah it's
0: four or five or something when
1: they introduced time travel <laughs> i would also buy a t-shirt that had like the stab movie logo on it yeah i would too that would
0: be oh fun. that was another thing about um so in the final girl support group like the support group is made up of all of these real life, you know, final girls who are analogous to the famous final girls of horror and mm-hmm. all of them had like movies based off of their experiences, what happened to them. And like the character who is meant to be lori Strode, like the mo- the movie's based off of her life were called The Babysitter Murders, which was the original title for Halloween. And like the character who is meant to be um Nancy Thompson from nightmare is like the movies are called the dream king or something like that
2: right
0: the character who's meant to be sydney prescott the movies based off of what happened to her are called stab that and i was that like, think they can't. called i was like that's what they're called that's what they're actually called you can't do that
1: <laughs> that's like so weak i was so mad <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, that's like, because I feel like doing that is half doing Scream and half doing, like, behind the mask. Yes. Like, that's what it feels like. There's a big
0: element to that, especially in the conclusion of the novel.
3: They
1: should have gone with, like, the movies being called, like, Yell or something. Like some yeah, Yell. Yeah. would scream. And, like, then, the
0: yeah, and then, like, the killer for that character like the person who attacked them or whatever it's called the ghost
1: ghostface.
2: so yeah Ghostface. please mr ghostface i want to be in the sequel well
1: everyone forgot about Tatum in the sequel. <laughs>
0: i just saw something the other day it was, was like it was like okay legit by scream three dewey forgot he ever had a sister <laughs>
1: talks about sydney he's like yeah she's like my sister and it was like yeah do you remember you had one do you remember your actual <laughs> sister who was murdered in the first film because <laughs> we do
2: oh boy anyway and her
1: in her perky tits oh my god it is so funny that in that scene they just slap on a uh like i don't know what you do for if there's like a nips bra you wear <laughs> or something because she's wearing a bra Like, you see the straps of it, and then they just are like, here, we're just going to end this scene.
0: And then also, we'll we'll do this. Yeah. So. Anyway. Well, cool. Fun things going on, as well as fun things to look forward to, including this week, Halloween Kills. Yes. Good stuff. But, um, uh... let's dive in now to the main portion of our episode. Um. This is going to be a slightly different episode because we're not covering one particular film, like we talked about at the top. Uh, we're covering the history of horror cinema, as I have been doing um, over on the blog. Feel free to check it out. As of this recording, um, I'm up through the '50s, and each post is going like decade by decade, because as we'll see, there's a really interesting thing in horror where there's very clear themes, like within these specific 10-year periods. And it makes mm-hmm. it really interesting and really easy to
2: sort of like <laughs> study the history.
0: <laughs> yeah, of course So I'm gonna be consulting those posts a lot. Um, and we're basically just sort of gonna have a no structure, like freewheeling discussion.
1: Combo. Cool. Feel free to um, follow along at home, kids, with the uh, blog post at splatter.chatter.com. Yeah. Ooh, nice plug.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so we're going to start with a post that I called "Early Evil," which is basically to kind of give us a sense of like where things began before things began. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. like where
1: was horror- pre-talkies?
0: Basically, yeah. Okay, <laughs> yeah. So, basically, the, the question of like where did horror cinema come from, and how did it? How was it tied? so closely to the beginning of movies in general, basically. So we'll do a little bit of overview for that. Okay. And essentially, as anybody who has studied film knows, um, and you you took some film classes, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You did, I did, I'm sure lots of people listening did or some people are just interested in it. The movies as we know them start in 1891 when Thomas Edison and his colleague William Dixon take the celluloid film roll that had been invented by George Eastman, and they use it to create the kinetograph.
1: Is this is a camera? The oh, train? sorry. Is this the train? And people freaked out. Yeah, this is basically.
0: <laughs> what yep. So they create the kinetograph, and that is a camera that is able to expose images in rapid succession. And um, they they develop it as a strip and then they put it inside a turn the crank device that you look into that they call the kinetoscope and it's just a ribbon of pictures moving very fast that gives the illusion of movement
2: Mm -hmm.
0: so the beginning of motion pictures okay um basically it starts as a, a novelty it's a fairground attraction. You put a, like, it's a literal, like, coin-in-the-slot type of machine. And it's meant for, like, a rapid turnover of a lot of spectators. It's not like a... You're going to sit down and... Right. So they're very short. They're very short.
1: Okay. Yeah, and it's meant to just be like, oh, how cute, how cool. Them's the movies. Like, them's the movies, Which yeah. we, don't, we make fun of the term talkies, but I'm like, movies. They're the movies. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. You're we like, oh, what a dumb term. And it's like, no, the current term is also dumb. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it always has been. Um, so and this, like, and the thing was, like, because it was just a cute novelty like this, like this the idea of it wasn't actually all that new because things like slideshows mm-hmm. and like um those magic lanterns that you see. Yeah, I was
1: gonna ask you about those, like um in the conjuring.
0: Yes, exactly. Like those sort of like pre-cinema spectacles, like those had been popular and those had been around for decades before the 1890s. So this was sort of just like almost a natural next step. And while people were interested, it wasn't like they were quite losing their minds just yet. Okay. But they soon would. Um, because some people quickly start realizing that there is potential here to turned the idea of the motion picture into like um, something that would require a gathering almost in the way people would show up for a lecture or a play. And Edison didn't really see potential in that at first. Um, really the people who figure that out are August and Louis Lumiere.
2: Ooh, what names. You <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, imagine, they're French. <laughs> what gave it away?
1: You meow. Hmm.
0: So they basically are like, okay, there's something here. And they developed their own device called the cinematograph in 1895. You should have kept that. Right? Doesn't that sound badass?
1: I'm going to see a cinematograph.
0: You're going to see the cinematograph. Are you coming? going to be um, late. And basically what the cinematograph is, is it's the kinetoscope, but with the ability to project the moving ribbon onto a screen. Okay, so this is film reel. Basically, yeah. And so on December 28th, 1895, the Lumiere brothers hold the first film showing for a paying audience in history. So basically the first
2: movie.
1: movie.
0: Um, It was in the basement of the Grand Cafe, which is in Paris. They showed a bunch of very brief snippets that had been filmed during um, the prior year by, um, like, they're just like everyday activities, like um, people exiting a factory. It was actually the Lumiere's factory. Um, There were a couple ones that were staged. There's one called the Sprinkler Sprinkled, in which a boy, like, stands on a hose. A gardener looks into it. Where's the water? He Takes his foot off and he gets sprayed. (laughs) And then that's it. Like, that's the end of the movie. So there were a lot of those. But, as you brought up, Miss Mel, the hit of the evening Mm -hmm. was the first true, like, film sensation, which is, like, a 15-second movie called The Arrival of a Train at La Ciudad. And it's exactly as it sounds. It is camera sitting, watching a train pull into a station. But because everybody essentially had never really seen motion pictures projected that large before that night a lot of people couldn't tell the difference between the image of a locomotive moving towards the camera and a real train crashing through the wall Mm -hmm. and so there were like reports of people like screaming and freaking out and scrambling because they thought it was real yeah which is kind of bonkers and really difficult, I think, for us
1: to imagine, but... I'm thinking about like, because I just recently had a conversation with a friend about the Oculus. Um, mm. Google Oculus, because they're putting the next Resident Evil game is coming out on Oculus, which sounds terrifying.
0: Oh, no, no parts of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was going to say, that sounds a bit much.
1: Yeah, no thank you. Though there's a Black Mirror episode about that. Yeah! Yeah! um but she was saying like there's been talk about instead of having like sort of the you know cuz the oculus is kind of this big goggle headpiece that sits on your face
0: right um, it seems kind of bulky
1: right and people have talked about trying to get that technology into contact lenses and doing it that way which again there was a black mirror episode about <laughs> but um The reason that they don't do it is because at that point, your brain's not going to be able to distinguish between, because when you're wearing the Oculus, like you're able to understand that you're watching something and you're not part of it, but when it becomes part of your vision, that way, it would, it would be impossible for your brain to sort of distinguish and you would have situations like, you know, the first time maybe humans saw something like a train coming at them. Yeah um in a as a moving picture. That's that's crazy. Yeah, like I feel like we should redo the train thing with Oculus contacts and see what happens and kind of see how the people react.
0: Yeah. And if people react the same way, maybe be like, okay, let's hold off on this for a minute. Yeah. Wow, isn't it wild to think you know that we're in that same space again with yeah. wildly different technology. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah pretty crazy night uh (laughs) for those parisian folks but um for about the next 10 years after that edison's kinetoscope and the lumiere brothers cinematograph coexist not really in competition all that much um but eventually it's the vision of um cinema that the lumiere brothers have that prevails this idea of cinema as a theatrical attraction. This is what catches on, um, not just in Paris, but around the world. And people start flocking to events like these and it starts inspiring um, other people to start making movies. And Edison's stuff is more used for like peep shows and sort of still in that like novelty Mm -hmm. um, fairground type of things, and then, when the century turns or within the early years, Edison kind of realizes that, okay, there's something in the projecting on a screen variety of this technology. So he starts trying some early productions, um, around this time, um, including the very first film version of Frankenstein, which was made in 1910. Have you
1: seen it? I have not. I wonder if it still even exists as a I always I find that like, interesting when people talk about films that only exist as a story at this point because we've mm-hmm. lost um,
0: we've lost the them, film yeah. to it and
1: you've you've heard that it existed back in those times, and you've heard people talk about it, but but you're like, oh, wait. no idea. yeah, and and I'm not
0: uh, now I'm trying to remember if this version of Frankenstein has been lost or not. Um,
1: I bet it's still out there. To find out. Or maybe not. I'm gonna, gonna find out, but... is, uh, I've been watching I binged uh, what we do in the shadows. Oh my god, it's so good, isn't <laughs> it's it? It's so funny. <laughs> so <laughs> I just funny. watched the episode with the uh where the, the sire escapes. I don't mm-hmm. know if you're up to date, but um I love I it. Am I was like, I'm watch- going to uh, I'm going to pull his tail. Oh he likes it. And she's <laughs> like, I'll <"That'll> put it <laughs> down, you <laughs> fucking idiot. <laughs> Sia! Sia! Girgushkar? No, I'm trying to say his name. He's saying nonsense. Girgur. Gyr- They're so <sighs> funny. I'm
0: seeing pictures of it, so it must still exist. Okay, so it still exists out there.
1: It looks fucking nuts,
0: by the way. I Yeah, I bet it does. I also imagine it's not that long because... Films back then, you know, in 1910 were not very long. They mm-hmm. didn't have the capability to be. Um, so Edison it's Studios. Probably available on YouTube. Edison had a film studio. Nice.
1: Oh, yeah, he did. He totally did. Oh, my God. They made 1,200 films.
0: Yeah. Holy
1: shit. Yes, well, that was, this film was 16 it, minutes long. One reel that was 975 feet. Okay. So, yeah,
0: that's... So, that was probably relatively standard at the time for if you were making like a big budget thing yeah in 1910 it would be like 16 minutes long which is now okay. we're like hey do you want to go see this three and a half hour movie yeah
1: <laughs> we also don't do any inter- intermissions anymore because everything's digital
0: yeah so <laughs> you better hold it you better get the um the extra big cup so you can just <laughs> so right But uh, interestingly, even though it was the Lumiere brothers whose vision kind of held true, they ended up going out of business um, within 10 years after uh, the cinematograph. And Edison starts raking in the cash. because This does not surprise me about Edison, by the way. I know. Because uh, he's a tool. (laughs) Well-known dick. (laughs) Yep. And in classic Edison fashion, he had a complete stronghold on american film production because he patented the sprocket holes Mm. which were the perforations that allowed film to run through the projector
2: okay so that's the
1: image we're used to seeing on the edges of of film yeah interesting
0: he patented that and so that essentially meant he controlled all of film at that point Um, or at least the only one who
1: knows how to make the film go through the projector
0: (laughs) right and so he has this vice grip on the industry that only gets broken because there's a bunch of like budding film enthusiasts who flee new york where he was based and Mm. was controlling the film scene and they go all the way across the country to found a new movie stronghold in california Mm. hollywood
1: nice hollywood land
0: or hollywood Hollywood land I guess yeah (laughs) it was originally until
1: when did land fall down I'm not sure I just remember it was a big deal because it was like 13 letters Mm -hmm. and that was part of why they got rid of it they were like (laughs) i want to say it was the 60s maybe it was earlier than that though anyway that sounds that sounds right anyway so,
0: yeah, so that's kind of how, okay, so that's cinema. And so how does horror tie into it? Well, what's interesting at this time is that, like, formats that would become movie genres were very well-defined in other media before, like, Edison and the Lumiere brothers came to prominence. Like, adventure stories, detective stories, those were universally, like, told in prose. Mm-hmm and theater was dominated by the musical and cheap novels were where westerns told their stories and like love stories was sort of how like was sort of the um what all of like narrative traditional art was for was to tell those kinds of stories um and like religious spectacles were like told through paintings and then you had like great epics. And even at this point, like science fiction was becoming something kind of recognizable by like the late 19th century. Cause that's when you have Jules Verne and HG Wells doing their writing. Um, but nobody living in 1890 would really have known what you meant if you were to call something a horror story at that time.
1: Okay, Like
0: that,
2: I'll it's not the thing though. Yeah,
0: thing. yeah, right. It's not that those stories didn't exist. It's just that like that word wasn't used to describe them or categorize them, if that makes sense.
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um and so with the birth of cinema, though, we see these kinds of different stories that would have been described in different ways as like mystery stories or supernatural something or whatever, like, start coalescing into, like, a recognizable genre um, thanks to these very early creatives in the movie world. And without getting too much into this part of things, like, this was kind of a long time coming for horror to become its own solidified genre um, because horrific elements... Have basically, been around since the epic of Gilgamesh.
2: Um mm-hmm.
0: like that has all kinds of gruesome fantastical details in it. Uh mythology is filled with heroes fighting monsters, um, you know, Greco-Roman stuff, Beowulf um has like mutilated corpses being left behind, right. a monster stalking people, like these are you know. Elements of storytelling that had been around since storytelling itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these myths and folktales and legends and various epic cycles, pretty much all of them conform to what we now think of as the structure of a horror story. And essentially you could remake any of those old tales as a horror film with relative ease and some of them even have been like the abominable dr fives uses the plagues of oh, Egypt as yeah. inspiration. Yeah there's
1: just a showing of that um at the colonial oh you didn't go I didn't go that'd be cool I bet yeah
0: um yeah uh and like uh the book of Job and everything that happens to him has been like described as the first it's called like a Conte Cruel, which means a cruel tale, you mm-hmm. know, where terrible things just keep happening to someone who really doesn't deserve them yeah, just over and over again. Um, the book of Revelation, which is like apocalyptic and has all this stuff about the Antichrist, like that's the source of Rosemary's Baby and the omen and whatnot. So there's all kinds of those elements, like classical drama was full of blood and guts. Oedipus is blinding himself. Like everyone's getting revenge. Everybody's murdering everybody. Like this is all familiar territory. Um, Some stuff about revenge tragedies. Yeah, revenge tragedies were really big like in Elizabethan Mm -hmm. times.
1: We had to read and then watch the film, which I would call a horror film, of um, Titus Andronicus. Mm. And In Shakespeare on film class, which nobody ever talks about. No! And,
0: and that's the, isn't that the one where, like, there's a fucking, like, red wedding?
1: Yeah, well, that's, like, where, um, when, um... Aria does her revenge on the phrase. It comes from. It comes from that Shakespeare when she cooks, you know, the Frey sons in a pie and feeds it to him. That's from Titus Andronicus. That's like the the culminating scene is um, the Roman general has you know is doing that to the the barbarian queen and stuff.
0: See, and that's yeah, that's
1: exactly yes,
0: that was totally shakespeare's deal basically like yeah there are tons of ghosts and grim and gore you know in theater of that time hamlet the vengeful specter and there's an there's an exhumed skull everybody's getting stabbed people are being poisoned ophelia goes mad um macbeth is just like fucking dripping in doom um and obviously you know the witches and their prophecy and the magic mm-hmm. and all that stuff mm-hmm. and Yeah, Titus Andronicus. Um, Yeah. Oh, and um, Christopher Marlowe, Shakespeare's contemporary, or Mm -hmm. maybe the person he stole things from, whatever side of that conspiracy you fall on. Yeah. He um, was big at the time because, well, one of his plays, The Tragical History of Dr. Faustus, basically gives us the archetypical deal with the devil story, as we now know it. Um, and you have Cyril Turnier who did the Revengers tragedy, uh, all of these plays started doing really elaborate stage effects, um, to sort of communicate all the, the nastiness that they, that they wanted to convey. Like there were hidden bladders of pig's blood, mm-hmm. um, that could be stabbed, you know, by daggers. Like in The White Devil, which was a play by John Webster, you had fake heads that, you know, they would brand about to the audience after decapitation scenes or, like, you know, figuring out ways um, to convey blood gushing out of the Duke's eyes and King Lear when he gouges them out. Like, Mm -hmm. this was all... um, stuff that was drawn on when film was born to figure out how to do this on screen because there was a long standing tradition of doing it on stage. Okay. But as you were saying, of course, horror stories existed. It, they just maybe weren't called that and mm-hmm. mostly they existed on page. Um in the 1700s in particular, there were a lot of people writing what we now term horror novels, including uh, Horace Walpole, who wrote The Cowdover Toronto, um, which,
1: have you read that? I have, I had to read it for, um, I might still have it around here somewhere. I had to read it for a class on, um, just like literature up until, it was like literature until whatever date, um, you know, 17 or 18 whatever, so I I can't remember what it was, but uh, yeah, we had to read Castle of Otranto. Nice. Um, I've not read it, so I only know,
0: you know, kind of how you know what things are without
1: Mm.
0: this. I don't know much about it. But it's like there's ghosts, there's an an old Italian castle. Yeah. It's like basically
1: the precursor to everything Poe ended up doing. was like old haunted castle and there's some supernatural elements like beyond just ghosts and that sort of thing. Um, Yeah. But it's the first thing we would sort of call a like a gothic, gothic novel. novel or even like a horror novel.
0: Nice. Oh. Yeah, so that's a big deal, um, but the probably most important um, writer of this time, author of this time for these kinds of novels was uh, Anne Radcliffe, who yes. she wrote The Mysteries of Adolfo and The Italian. I, she wrote a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. Like, Those two are um, the really big ones. And she was, because of that, she was the most commercially successful of um, all the Gothic novelists. Um, And her stories involved a lot of tropes that were worked in the Gothic and throughout horror, including, um, you know, heroines in danger, going up against magnetic repulsive villains um mm-hmm. she often set her stories in crumbling italian palaces mm-hmm. you know like the idea of the Gotham you know the,
1: the usual the usual there's contested heritances inheritances there's ah. secret
0: passageways. see this
1: is stuff where i'm like can we do this again but not be crimson peak mm-hmm. crimson peak i feel like really tried to do that and you know it was pretty interesting but kind of turned into something goofy at the end but um
0: yeah and i think crimson peak was like a bit too pat
1: you know Like yeah.
0: it needed to just it needed a bit more of an edge yeah and i think people would have enjoyed it more but yeah and so but but of course in her novels as in most of the novels at this time the supernatural businesses would then be explained away at the end mm-hmm. like scooby-doo style um <laughs> And it was usually like, it was just like bandits in disguise and Mm -hmm. stuff or whatever. And so eventually we get to this point where Jane Austen is paying homage to Radcliffe with Northanger Abbey.
2: Okay.
0: Um, Because at that point, the Gothic is like an established strain of popular culture. A lot of parents were concerned of the effects that Gothic novels was having on their children. Um, It was actually so prevalent that there was, even like a movement in architecture around that time, where like buildings were constructed in like mock medieval style.
1: Interesting. So they wanted to sort of um, emulate the the style that was being sort of lauded in the yeah models. exactly, which I think is
0: really interesting. And I don't know squat about architecture, but mm-hmm. coming across. I that- know
1: from uh, Beauty and the Beast, they have um the Baroque, mm-hmm. the Baroque arches or whatever
0: yeah that's right that's right this is like, i know that broke? and i
1: know like the
0: different kinds of columns from like greek yeah you know, but that's about it <laughs> it's not
1: baroque. don't fix it don't fix it
0: <laughs> yeah pretty interesting um so yeah other uh, maybe things to know that time matthew gregory lewis um writes a massive bestseller in 1796
1: uh the monk okay
0: and this actually does involve the supernatural as a plot element um and it's considered a very depraved novel for the time and it was like a cause of major controversy because it was very anti catholic um oh. yeah but most british gothic novels were from what mm-hmm. i understand um because you know yeah um it's a it's a basically a faust story um we the main character's name is Ambrosio, who's like this very saint-like person. He gets mm-hmm. visited by a demon in the form of a young girl, and he gets tempted into all sorts of like
1: nonsense
0: nonsense yeah and his crimes start to escalate there's eventually there's matricide there's incestuous rape there's all kinds of like really insane stuff
1: i'm just thinking of the uh, fake film from tropic thunder with toby Maguire. basically <laughs> yeah. I I, it was called I'm pretty sure that's the monk
0: yeah. <laughs> um yeah and then like in the end he gets like torn to shreds by the devil and oh my so gosh. yeah things start getting like kind of crazy. Um, That's a really extreme example, but also writing at the same time as Louis is a French aristocrat, uh, Donatien Alphonse Francois, who we better know by his title, the Marquis de Sade. Um, He, well, there's a lot to go into about him, but basically, (laughs) He's a big writer of the Gothic. In 1800, he writes that the Gothic novel was the necessary fruit of the revolutionary tremors felt by the whole of Europe. And thus he is regarded as one of the first critics to perceive a connection between upheavals in society and fantastical fiction. Hmm. Which, I don't know, kind of an interesting historical footnote considering people make their whole careers out of doing that now. (laughs) yeah
1: we're hoping to do that now yeah right so yeah so in the later gothic period
0: you know now we're in into the 1800s we get a lot of um still really well-known and well-studied texts um charles matron's melmoth the wanderer um jay sheridan Le Fanu's uncle silas and the house by the churchyard uh as well as the uh famous precursor to dracula carmilla is written around this time, 1872, in fact. Um, kind of happening parallel to this is also when the Gothic begins to become serialized
2: mm-hmm. into
0: what would what we now call the Penny Dreadfuls. Mm-hmm. And this is when we first start meeting the characters Dick Turpin, Varney the Vampire, and Sweeney Todd,
2: mm-hmm.
0: who um, we covered in- yeah. Oh god i don't know what episode that was but this
2: check sweeney it out <laughs> the sweeney
0: todd episode um but of course we can't have a discussion about the gothic period without touching on its most famous and lasting horror novel mary shelley's frankenstein
1: yeah also the uh probably the precursor to most science fiction as well
0: yeah pretty much because um that was published in 1818 anonymously um, at the time, Mary was not the respectable Mrs. Shelley, but the scandalous Mary Godwin,
2: Ooh. a
0: teenage runaway, um, adulteress, and basically a romantic poetry groupie.
1: Yeah, because they um, they spent the summer escaping That's a right. plague, I think, actually,
2: ironically. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, the story goes that Frankenstein is the result of a scary story competition, basically. <clears throat> between Mary, um, Lord Byron, and Percy Bysshe Shelley. Um, This story is actually um, in the prologue of Bride of Frankenstein, the movie. And it's been covered on its own in a couple other uh, movies, mostly from the 80s, uh, Gothic and Haunted Summer and Rowing with the Wind. Um, But what's interesting about Frankenstein is that it's it owes its like structure of stories within stories to the gothic because that was a very common way Mm -hmm. um to tell gothic stories but it does break a ton of new ground within the story itself which is of course about our mad scientist Victor frankenstein and his tragic monster um and like you said, yeah, it does a ton of work for horror, but also science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of complex morality that gets brought up in Frankenstein. Um, and what most people agree is what's so captivating about the novel, or at least interesting is that from the, from the text itself, um, Victor's crime is not making the monster, but in being a bad parent.
1: Yeah, it's a the event aban- cuz when he first sees him I mean I can't I read the novel a long time ago but I've seen a few different adaptations of it you know since then and I feel like a lot of them open with um like the one really famous um one recently is the play version with Benedict Cumberbatch and um oh yeah that other guy who plays a different version of Sherlock Holmes <laughs> um <laughs> where they I guess they switched off every night, which right. one of them played Frankenstein and which one of them played the creature. but it opens with because um, like basically, while the audience is getting seated, there's something like in a um, sort of vat that's like growing and like there's a sort of like a pulse and that sort of thing that's happening. Oh. And then the show ends up opening with like the birth of the creature and Victor Frankenstein seeing it and running away. And then you don't see Victor Frankenstein again for like 20 or 30 minutes. Oh, that's You just cool. follow the creature. That's interesting. Yeah.
0: What a different way to tell that story though. Yeah. Yeah. And to kind of frame it like you're immediately sympathetic with the monster, you know, the yeah. creature. Yeah. Oh, I like it. Yeah. It's interesting stuff. Um. But yeah, but interestingly, before this contest takes place, um, you know that results in Frankenstein, which I think we would pretty much all agree is Horace's first true milestone.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, a man named uh, John Polidari, a doctor who also kind of like was in the same social circle as like Shelley and Byron and whatnot, um, he writes a short pu- writes and publishes a short story called The Vampire. Yes. Um, and this character is basically meant to be a caricature of Lord Byron. Um, and it's noticeable because it's the first vampire story written in English. Um, but, um, there had been plenty of others written in other languages, mostly German, which is what this sort of group was, uh, studying and researching. They had been looking at folk and horror tales translated from German, um, and while it's not proven, um, a lot of people think that the group encountered a short story called The Sandman by um, a German man named E.T.A. Hoffmann, which is about a doll that comes to life and is in a lot of ways like a spiritual predecessor for
1: Frankenstein. Interesting.
0: Yeah, um, there's no like, I guess proof primary source that mm-hmm. they actually read this story, but I guess we know enough to know that they probably did. Mm-hmm. Um so that's interesting. Yeah. And then of course we've got, as you already mentioned, our um good old boy Edgar Allan Poe. So um he openly acknowledged the influence of the Germanic Gothic in his work. He writes a ton of horror tales in the uh, 1830s and forties. He plays a lot with the genre. Um, he doesn't stick to traditional story structure. He writes about deranged characters. Um, his, his stories involve a lot of like physical and experimental torment. Um, and, and actually he's, he's not, he doesn't stick to horror right like he mm. invents
1: what we think of as the detective story yeah i was gonna i was actually recently just talking about poe with um charlotte and like what we each like because i was asking because i read a lot of his horror and gothic stuff in school and she read more of his detective stories
2: um See? so it's
1: interesting because she like really didn't know him as a a horror writer because she had read pretty much all his mysteries yeah isn't that interesting? Yeah. 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 So he's really big on that.
0: He also wrote, um, I don't think he's as known for this, but like he also wrote some early science fiction.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, he also wrote, um, some humor. Uh, he wrote journalistic hoaxes, puzzle stories, uh, reviews, begging letters. Um, but yeah, like Ms. Mel was saying, it's his horror and his mystery stories. Um, that sort of like, give us, the best glimpse into his imagination um, and sort of like cement his legacy. And his works have been adapted countless times over the years. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and there's like a core of them that get done again and again. The Black Cat, Murders of the Rue Morgue, Follow the House of Usher, Mm -hmm. uh, Mask of the Red Death. So, um, so the Gothic, you know, as a story is usually about like a virtuous, imperiled heroine who is saved at the end of the day but poe was doing a lot of women who were already dead (laughs) or or they were dying or they were spectral and his protagonists tended to be male Um, and they tended to be males on the verge of madness or on the verge of like some sort of like otherworldly wisdom
2: Mm-hmm.
0: um obsession is a big deal in his stories um frenzy sort of as a concept uh he played a lot with form like he does a lot of like dash ridden sentences yes um he writes as if you know he's in the mind of the character as if he's insane or if he's drunk um which no one had really done before him um Uh, His poems, are actually also really complex. Um, The meter he uses, the rhyme scheme that he uses. uh, I don't know, basically Poe was a big deal,
3: Mm -hmm.
0: which I guess doesn't surprise most of us. So when the late 19th century rolls around though, the gothics kind of seem a bit quaint in the public eye. Also almost comical. Um, we still get a few gothic elements in this later period. Uh, Bleak House by Charles Dickens is often considered a, a gothic novel. Uh, Wilkie Collins writes the Woman in White in uh, 1859. Um, but it's it's kind of regarded as like, oh, how cute, you know, <laughs> when this point, rolls around plus Poe is uh getting a reputation for having a very messy life
1: Mm -hmm. Um, yeah I feel like that's most of what we learned about Poe was yeah we read a story and then we were like did you know he died and they found his body in a gutter everyone's like uh
0: what (laughs) (laughs) um so the decades immediately preceding and following the birth of cinema, see an unparalleled burst of horror fiction, basically, uh, around this time. Um, And what's kind of interesting is that more sort of cornerstone or keystone works are written in this short time than like pretty much any other time. Because within 20 years, we get the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Mm -hmm. She, The Picture of Dorian Gray, Trilby, The King in Yellow, The Time Machine, The Island of Dr. Moreau, The Invisible Man, War of the Worlds, Dracula, Jewel of the Seven Stars, Turn of the Screw, Hound of the Baskervilles, Heart of Darkness, Ghost Stories of an Antiquary, The Empty House, House of Souls, House on the Borderland, and Phantom of the Opera.
3: Hmm.
1: All within two decades. So, well, I was going to ask, a lot of these were serials as well, right? Like, wasn't that they the prime um, mechanism yeah. for putting them out was serialized?
0: Yeah, most of them were. Um, I think... Was Dracula serial? I'm trying to
1: remember. I think it was. I know Originally. I know Phantom was serial, uh yeah. serialized, and that's why it has like a lot of elements of detective fiction in it. Yeah.
0: Um like always ending in the chapters on a cliffhanger.
1: Yeah. But um Yeah, I'm I'm like, oh, do I know if any of these weren't? I think a lot of really? them when I I mean, I don't know any specific ones, but even like Carmilla, I think, was serialized. Like I think that was basically the way a lot of these stories were published um yeah because like you know like even even in the late 1800s
0: like the novels like as one publishable chunk is still kind of a weird idea for people you know yeah um but anyway so all of these are hitting the shelves. They're um, finding their way into people's personal collections, all as cinema is advancing, you know, from the the little snapshots into more feature length stories that start kind of um, finding ways to compete with like stage productions at uh, the time. And so um, most of those titles that I just listed, they start getting filmed over and over and over again. And spawn sequels and prequels and imitations and homages and reboots and reworkings. Like, I mean, that still happens today. Um, And so it it may be that like 50% of all the horror movies ever made are in one way or another drawn from this, like two and a half decades of literary production. And if you put in Frankenstein and Poe, it's almost like three fourths. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of wild. Um, so this outpouring of what is very soon about to be labeled as horror gets linked to the development of cinema and other technologies of the time almost like unintentionally and unconsciously, you know, because that did they just happen to be happening at the same time. And when Things change rapidly. People are usually excited, but also scared. Mm -hmm. And this was a time of rapid change. So when you have that collective social thrill going on, it's, it's encouraging for storytellers to play on those emotions. And so that's why we see that as like an underlying theme in many of those works. Um, other things to note about the gothic novels they all tend to look back putting their settings in the past or in sort of like a fantasized version of a foreign country that is like coded as being less advanced somehow than the western world um it's interesting because like you know we you know think about these stories and like foggy gaslight london as being like you know a nostalgic view, but, like, at the time, that was up to the moment,
2: Mm -hmm. you
0: know, for Stevenson and Stoker and LaRue, and they all, and they they played on that by uh, incorporating, like, newspaper clippings into their work and writing a lot of things as, like, journal entries uh, to add weight to the fantastical that was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, which is sort of like, a, you know, I mean, people do that all the time now. I mean, Final Girl Support Group is, like, littered with, like, journal entries and newspaper articles to, like, make it feel more real.
1: Right. And, like, even, um, like, the first time I read Carrie, I was so surprised to see mm-hmm. how much of it was kind of epistolary. Yeah, exactly. Um, so
0: these titles that we now consider horror classics when you actually go back and revisit most of them the horror elements are usually not the primary focus like Jekyll and Hyde is actually like basically a crime thriller Mm -hmm. with a twist at the end like revealing that Jekyll and Hyde are the same person that like would be more akin to like, you know, fight club or usual suspects or something like that's the kind of story it was regarded at the time. Mm -hmm. And the picture of Dorian Gray is mostly like a black satire. And HG Wells' stuff is regarded as like scientific romance, but like he has all these like horrifying monsters and beast people and Vampires from Mars, you know. Yeah. And like Heart of Darkness is often regarded as like serious literature, but there's like severed heads everywhere you look.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting, and not to like turn this into a uh you know, heart of darkness thing, but when you brought that up as a uh, you know, potential, you know, one of the examples of horror films uh from that time period, it's so interesting because. Like, yeah no that makes sense like that is you know it's not what you you know it's not gothic um right but it definitely is horrifying and it deals with kind of this mysterious and kind of gothic-esque figure in um kurtz who you don't ever see and hear people talk about and you see like the mm-hmm. effects of him um but you never actually see him um yeah
0: which is like what a terrifying premise yeah yeah um but but still what we remember and what stays in pop culture are the horror elements and are those like set pieces that cinema really helped solidify in the public consciousness like dorian's portrait or jekyll taking the potion and mm-hmm. tr- transforming the hide or the martians arriving and like you know, devastating the countryside and the uh, ghosts, little ghost figurines and slamming doors and like Henry James and Dracula's castle or, you know, those elements is what sticks. Mm -hmm. So essentially, if modern horror starts anywhere, it starts with Dracula. It uses all of the strategies that, you know, Collins and Stevenson used, and that are that still get used by Stephen King and Stephen Graham Jones and Carmen Maria Machado. Um, and, you know, pretty much every horror film uses the same strategies as Dracula. But interestingly, its plot isn't all that different from like Beowulf, you know, mm-hmm. or something from that time period. Um, its setting is realistic, um, but you know, exotic enough that you can allow for um, some suspension of disbelief and immersion. If you're a contemporary audience at the time, there's a mystery element. You know, the human characters are trying to figure out the source of all this strange phenomenon. Like, how does this monster work? There's a climax where the heroes win. You know, after like one final confrontation. Um, and so that's that's kind of where things uh, begin, <laughs> more or less, with the old count. But uh, interestingly, um, before Dracula shows up um, for the first time on the big screen is when we get uh, the very first horror film ever. Mm-hmm. which is uh the devil's castle interesting from- never heard yeah. of it ah yes ah. so it's a film from 1896 and uh oh and for those following along we've now moved into beastly beginnings <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, it takes about three and a half minutes to watch this movie and um what happens is a bat flies into a haunted castle and then turns into the devil spooky spooky Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then he produces a giant black cauldron and he conjures up some imps and demons and a ghost and a witch and a skeleton and then this like cavalier soldier bursts in the castle and he has a crucifix and then the devil disappears same and that and that's it and that sounds the description of it sounds familiar you've probably seen clips of it or pictures Mm -hmm. of it you know um here and there or like maybe in a film class or something um and so it's interesting because the imagery that was used here in the devil's castle um it's uh, has been noted as like the starting point for um most of our contemporary understandings of what a vampire is, okay. which is uh, you know the bat trans you know transforming into a bat from a you know demonic sort of figure, the power of the crucifix to vanquish that figure. Mm-hmm. um so a lot of people have said, well, this isn't just the first horror film. In history it's also the first vampire film okay um however because even though this like solidified those that imagery and that trope of like bat equals evil and crucifix defeats evil like um that was not that that those ideas existed before it was just that this the devil's castle was the first time that they were like put on screen and became like does that make sense yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: The first um, time they were visually rendered
0: yes thank you i was like why can't i get this out <laughs> um and uh interestingly uh devil's castle is you know it comes out a year before dracula gets published so mm-hmm.
2: uh
0: if they're connected who knows but <laughs> interesting to know
1: i uh It's interesting with Dracula because I also know that Dracula pulls a ton from Carmilla.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, You know, like originally Dracula was going to be set in Austria where Carmilla is set. Um, The reason that Dracula is a count is because Carmilla was a countess in that story. Um, There's a proto Van Helsing character in Carmilla. Um, I think there's some elements of like, you know, the church and, you know, sort of yeah I think so. from that being, um, you know, deadly. Um, but it's, it's so interesting to see, um, like, how that evolved. I think we should do, like, at some point, a whole episode just on, like, how the folklore of the vampire. That would be really cool. Got to today because it is truly, truly fascinating. And like horror itself, it's a very good microcosm for, like, where societies were at different yeah. points in time with how they portrayed um, this monster. Yeah, well, yeah, and,
0: and you're totally right. And I think, you know, there's also a lot to get into about like why Dracula stuck so much in the public consciousness when Carmilla had pretty much done everything mm-hmm. Dracula did first and, you know, sexism is a thing. So, <laughs> um, but, yeah, but yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, Devil's Castle, was directed and starred uh, a gentleman by the name of Georges Millier.
2: um,
0: Film scholars are probably familiar with his name. He is regarded as the father of the cinema fantastique. Um, He was basically the successor to the Lumiere brothers who dealt more in like documentary realism with their movies um, and while they didn't see much in film beyond like a passing fad, Millier, who was a magician and a showman beforehand, Mm -hmm. uh, and like an illusionist, viewed um, film as a way to aid his magic and like trick photography.
1: Yeah, and he had some things later in his career that were like, there were some controversies, right? Yes. I think, yeah, there were some weird late career films that he was putting out that, um,
0: yeah, that like really tanked his reputation.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: He's an interesting figure. Um, and I don't know. I mean, you know, like him and Edison, and, you know, they were all like, not necessarily in this for like the joy of the art, you yeah, know? <laughs> well, definitely not Edison, yeah., um, and so it, it, it's hard because it's like, well, it can't be denied the influence they had, but I don't know. they yeah. weren't like the the chillest people around. <laughs> but anyway, um, so he makes these movies where he's using things like multiple exposures and dissolves and perspective tricks. Um, to basically do vaudeville acts on film. Like there's no like huge story to the devil's castle. It's just like a parade of tricks, like one after the other, basically. Mm. It's just a showcase of illusions. Um, So between that, that film in 1896 and 1914, Millier directs 500 movies. Holy
2: shit.
0: I guess when they're only like 5 minutes long, it's pretty easy. Right.
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Um and he mostly does the fantastical, but he does a couple of other things here and there as well. Some literary adaptations and some religious things or whatever. He's also uh one of the first people to do like a parody type thing. Mm-hmm. Um he does a parody newsreel about the coronation of King Edward the Seventh. Um, that the The king himself actually thought was real um and uh you know he he tries a bunch of different things he copies a lot of other styles copies is generous he rips off a lot of other styles before he sort of makes his own um mark with like the magic films um After Devil's Castle, he does a number of other films that like use the same sort of like dark tone. He builds movies around demonic figures and like one big grand illusion. Um, He translates a lot of his stage work into, into film and basically just films himself doing tricks again and again and again. Um, and the more he does it, the longer the movies get, the more ambitious they get. Um, he starts doing some longer literary adaptations. He does an adaptation of writer Haggard, she, um, he does an adaptation of Cogliostro's mirror. He starts, um, some fairy tales that he gives a dark edge to, uh, one of the earliest film versions of little red riding hood something he did. He does, um a bluebeard story, a couple of hmm. other things. This was um, hey, back
1: before um, copyright matters.
0: <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, but what most people remember them him for or what gets parodied a lot is a film he makes in 1901 called A Trip to the Moon. Yes, um, yeah, I know that yeah.
2: one.
0: And the Blue's basic idea is that it's about a lunar trip. Um, which was an idea circulating in fiction at the time, thanks to like Jules Verne and H.G. Wells' stories. And it does really, really well. So Millier gets encouraged to make more like impossible voyage movies. So he starts making ones about like people that go to the sun or go under the sea or go to the North Pole, which was considered impossible in mm. the early 1900s. Um and basically he's just like, I just want to like amaze audiences and I want to like scare them. And I want like, you know, I'm not like interested in telling a story. I just want to give them spectacles. So he's all about the special effects. Um, and he doesn't really consider himself like a genre filmmaker. That wasn't so much of a thing then mm-hmm. or like part of the horror business. But basically like the imagery he uses and the tricks that he uses are like, come to get replicated again and again over the following decades. Mm-hmm. So by the beginning of the 20th century, um, you know everyone around the world is basically watching movies. Uh, there's some international competition now at this point, like America is still probably like leading the fray. You have Edwin S. Porter, uh, DW Griffith, um, but also in Italy, they're making a ton of movies over there. Um, they focused on a figure from Italian mythology, uh, Machiste, um, who's like this big, like Hercules type character that there's tons of movies made about in the 1910s. Uh, E.T.A. Hoffman's starts like, um, experimenting with shadows on film in Germany. And, uh, uh there's some um, more adaptationism, <laughs> Yeah, we're getting, yeah, it's Flooding versions of that. Um, the Brits start doing um, their own adaptations, mostly of like Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, there's some Danish films that start getting made around this time. Everybody's sort of like cashing in on this. Um, Jekyll and Hyde in particular seems to be like really popular. Uh, Germany starts making adaptations of that. Uh, so does um, the Netherlands uh even um a really early version um in 1913 that was produced by carl lemel who would soon become the patriarch of universal pictures which is a going to be a big deal in the history of horror
2: um
0: and then like in the later half of the 1910s things started like quiet down and don't really resurface again until 1920 and then there are three new versions of the Jekyll and Hyde story that come out almost simultaneously. Um, And one stars John Barrymore um, in like this, like Max Shrek looking type version of Hyde. Um, And then there's another version with uh, Sheldon Lewis and then F.W. Murnau directs a film that he calls Dr. Jekyll. Um, which is one of those lost films
2: uh, Mm -hmm. where
0: Conrad Veidt plays the doctor. And in this version, he transforms because of a magical statue rather than mad science.
3: So it's the first,
0: (laughs) yeah, it's the first moment when like the story diverges from its source material. I don't know why it had to be a statue.
1: They were trying something new. (laughs) They
0: were trying something new and we won't fault them for that um uh bella lugosi yeah also has uh his very early role in his career as the doctor's butler in um this version of the story and interestingly we start seeing the first um like big scale parodies of horror movies at this time um including horrible hide and dr pickle and mr pride (laughs) So. Dracula Hyde is sort of the most frequently adapted story in the silent film era, but definitely not the only horror story getting adapted. Of course, we had Edison's Frankenstein in 1910. Um, then uh, that was followed up by Life Without Soul, um, in which the um, it's like a it's not a direct adaptation of Frankenstein. It's like a you know oh, we don't want to get sued version of Frankenstein. Um, there's an Italian version of the story. A picture of Dorian Gray is also getting adapted at this point in Russia, in America. Um, actually, a couple of times in America, uh, once, um, starring Henry Victor, who would later go on to be the uh, star of uh, Freaks in the 1930s. Interesting, um, interesting. Oh, there's also some adaptations from Hungary where Bela Lugosi was from. In fact, he plays uh, Sir Henry in the one version. It's also at this time that Sherlock Holmes debuts on the big screen. Um, and uh, f- interestingly, a lot of Holmes stories at this time are given a supernatural edge and or they are crossed over with Poe stories. And so we get things like um, Sherlock Holmes and the great murder mystery where Holmes is solving the murders in the Rue Morgue.
2: Yeah. That's like
0: weird fan fiction shit. Mm -hmm. In like 1912.
1: I feel Um, like there is even there's that's definitely still being done like you definitely still have that today where people um yeah kind of set certain characters certain non-copyrighted or out-of-copyright characters and other out-of-copyright worlds.
0: Yeah, isn't that weird to think, though? That like, I don't know. Um, And of course, what's also big is Hound of the Baskervilles um, that gets filmed, uh, it's an early adaptation in 1902, another version in Denmark in 1903. Although that changes it from a hound to like a spectral woman which is interesting. Um, And uh, Germany does an adaptation and ends up doing six sequels to it. Um, Sort of making like one of the first like earliest franchises. Um, And it's just like Sherlock Holmes pursuing this like dog trainer villain over seven movies. we're also seeing adaptations of Hunchback of Notre Dame, Sweeney Todd, Maria Martin, The Faust Story, The Monkey's Paw, Fu Manchu. This is all going on in the 1910s. Uh, Poe is a huge source in France and in America. Um, and then uh, the Brits get in. They do, they start doing feature-length things with The Avenging Hand. They adapt uh, Bram Stoker's novel, Jewel of the Seven Stars um the lesser known of his two mm-hmm. great works i guess um there's also like a, a string of really popular uh, mummy movies in the 1910s as well um which most people think coincides with the rise in interest in egyptology because of um king tut's tomb was discovered
1: i was um on that film podcast it was telling you about um before they did an episode on the mummy movie as a concept and um they had a really like cool intelligent guest on but basically she was explaining like the tropes and motifs of the mummy films that come out of these early mummy movies and like Mm. how a lot of films today would be considered a sort of mummy film even though there's not you know, a mummy involved the way that we would expect it, but it's basically like, you know, Westerner goes to foreign land where they're not supposed to be, you know, uh, there's a certain amount of, you know, like colonizer, you know, scaredness of like, you know, mysticism in, in an area you awaken something, um, it was really interesting because there were certain films where she was like i can't remember them off the top of my head but she's like well this is technically a mummy film
3: <laughs> yeah
1: like yeah like it's even like alien a... or something could be considered a mummy film uh under those those tropes yeah like this
0: idea of like coming into like an ancient civilization and like awakening something Yeah. you know yeah yeah, definitely. So those are really popular at the time. Um other popular movies. There's a film called The Vampire in 1913 which is actually about an East Indian snake woman.
2: Ooh.
0: Yeah. And um a film called The Werewolf from the same year which is about um a Native American shapeshifter. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a large number of films about monkey gland transplants which
2: were i wonder
1: um, if that's coming because you know you've got um like evolution appearing as a concept at the end of the 19th century i think so apparently it was like a medical
0: fad of the day and yeah like you know the evolutionary theory was you know big at the time um there's a novel about like uh, gorillas also tend to be a big theme, like humanized gorillas, um, that comes up a lot. And so at this time, we're definitely seeing like the first filmmakers who are really specializing in the macabre, as well as um, actors. Um, among them was uh, Paul Wegener, uh, a German actor and director who um, did The Student of Prague, which was um, from a very uh, Poe-like story by H.H. Ewers, like it's a Faust deal with the devil, doppelganger type thing. Um, And then he really breaks out because um, he plays the titular creature in The Golem from 1915. Oh, is that based on the book?
2: Or is that just...
0: I believe so. definitely like the legend itself Mm -hmm. um, about the statue from the Prague ghetto um, coming to life and Mm -hmm. seeking revenge through rampage, et cetera, et cetera. That gets both a kind of parodic sequel as well as a very elaborate prequel um, and leads to uh, Wagner taking on a lot of other sort of like strange roles for his career. He plays an Aleister Crowley stand-in in The Magician, he plays Svengali, um, and then he finishes out his career doing um, like an episodic serial called The Living Dead. Um, And he's sort of regarded as like the first uh, breakout horror star basically, Um, even though he wasn't super regarded as that at the time. Wagner and his rival Richard Oswald, um, who came to prominence doing all of those Hounds of the Baskerville sequels, um, they do, um, they like adapted uh, pretty much like any previous pre existing work they could get their hands on. Um, and they were really good about creating like um, very pictorial. Virtues and they had a good sense for like the material they were adapting, but um they weren't necessarily good filmmakers, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like they didn't necessarily understand the potential behind what cinema could do. And so there was sort of a gap in that sense that other people stepped into. And one of the most well-known examples of this is uh Robert Wine's The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari which uh, came out in 1920, incredibly influential, very famous. Um, and, you know, wine's direction as well as like Karl Meyer's sets and um, Hans janowicz and Walter rowings art direction and the, the way they paint shadows and way they do the the tricks of the film and, um, uh, all of that like makes the story, the film rather, like a total lightning in the bottle, like mega success. Um, It's also um, one of the earliest examples of uh, German expressionism on film Mm -hmm. and maybe the best example of German expressionism on film. Um, And, the input from Fritz Lang, who was set to direct, but then had to back out about like some plot developments, um, helps turn the narrative into um, like a more accessible movie for uh, contemporary audiences at the time. So it's at once this sort of like early art house example and this like commercially viable, product that is meant to be taking you into the mind of a deranged individual mm-hmm. um crazy movie even now um
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and yeah it does really really well Werner Krauss becomes a breakout performer he is the mesmerist of the film the titular Dr. Caligari Conrad veit uh plays uh, uh Caesar who is um the, the somnambulist and the, ends up being the murderer he's the one whose nightmares were inside of um they both sort of become um in that class with Wegener as like the first set of horror stars Vite um goes on to have a long-standing career you know he plays the Count of Cogliostro he's um, in Paginini, he's in Hands of Orlock. He's considered by Universal to play Dracula. Um, he plays Ivan the Terrible. He plays Rasputin. He's in The Wandering Jew. He has a very long career. Uh, same with Krauss. He plays the Iago and Othello, Jack the Ripper. He plays the Devil. They both sort of exploded after cabinet. Um Meanwhile, F.W. Murnau casts Vite in The Head of Janos, which was like a Jekyll and Hyde ripoff, um, And he, that does pretty well. So he's hoping that uh, he can basically repeat that um, and rip off Dracula. But what he doesn't count on is that um, Bram Stoker's widow, is not quite as negligent as Robert <laughs> Louis Stevenson's estate was. And so some legal issues come to head. And so instead of directly adapting Dracula, FW Murnau creates um Nasferatu. Yes. Which
1: is funny because for whatever reason, for the longest time, I didn't know that it was just basically Dracula under a different name and then the first time i went to see it they were like yeah like they couldn't get the rights for it and they basically did this and the stoker estate still tried to sue them over <laughs> it." <laughs> and it's
0: like uh, oh yeah oh so yeah so that goes down um and um it's, notice, it's notable for many reasons. Um, one in particular is that it was filmed on location, uh, mostly in Slovakia, um, amongst like actual ruins and in the mountains, um, which, you know, was unusual at the time. Most things were filmed in studio. Like obviously Caligari had to be filmed completely on constructed sets. Um, and most folks agree that Nosferatu is actually still the only adaptation of Dracula directly or indirectly that's actually concerned with terror Mm -hmm. because Max Shrek is this like rat-faced monster creepy long figures like he is a straight up like creature of the undead whereas every other version of Dracula, essentially, that we've ever seen. He's, like, relatively human-looking, or he's glamorous, or he's sulky, or he's, you know, Mm -hmm. like, Shrek's interpretation of the character is a straight-up monster.
1: Which is interesting Um. because when I went to go see Nosferatu, it was at the Mütter Museum, um, and it- They gave a lecture before the film about um, it was like a visiting professor, who basically was talking about the film's use and like the general use in the horror genre of um, disease and illness as Mm. stand-ins or monsters as stand-ins for disease and illness, um, and how this interpretation, you know, you see a version of Dracula that is it looks like a, you know, very sickly individual. Very uncanny, um, and uh, you know he's sort of this stalking, you know, entity, and he he's brought over from a you know another place by uh, somebody who traveled abroad and that sort of thing. And it was a very interesting lecture.
0: Yeah that that sounds fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, like that's the thing, right? It's still being talked about today. It's still being screened today. People are giving lectures about it, writing about it, talking about it. Um, it's, you know, kind of regarded as like a template for the horror film, just like Dracula is the template for the horror novel. Um, and there are obviously, Bernal had to change some things, um, you know, to get away essentially with yeah. <laughs> stealing the the story, but the things he changed um, ended up sort of like sticking in pop culture, you know, like um, that daylight, you know, the first light of day is dangerous to to vampires uh, was an addition. So, you know, Cabinet Dr. Caligari and Nosferatu, those are like the big expressionist films at the time, but um, they're not uh, the only story because obviously as we know in the 1920s german society is absolutely spiraling out of control mm-hmm. um there are all kinds of like horrible people popping up and and whispers of horrible things going down um and that gets reflected uh in the movies as well um fritz lang does uh doctor Mabuse, the gambler in which Rudolf Klein Rogue um, is this like superhuman evil um, criminal of the world type figure, very like Moriarty um, that gets um, redone again and again and again is kind of like a founding film for uh, most thrillers, um, including most of what Alfred Hitchcock does in his early work. In the 20s and 30s and it lays the groundwork for film noir in the 40s and uh, spy movies in the 60s and conspiracy dramas in the 70s um mabuse is sort of like this evil genius you know uh spider webby type figure right that can like do anything even when he's like trapped in prison, you know,
2: Mm -hmm. which is
0: the plot of one of the sequels. Um, But uh, more influential than that, that Lang makes is uh, his very haunting film M, uh, which is the first serial murder film in which Peter Lorre stars as a pedophile killer who is stalked by the cops, um, as well as other like underworld criminals throughout the city to bring him to justice. Um, now, like other killers had sort of been brought to the screen. Like um, Jack the Ripper was a relatively common figure to draw on um, like in waxworks. But usually when that happened, like the presence of the Ripper was muted or sort of just window dressing for the story um like in uh, pandora's box or even alfred hitchcock one of his early films in the 1927 the lodger is an expressionist ripper story hmm. but m was like the first time it was really like about the killer and we followed the killer throughout um so fairly big deal. Uh, Hollywood meanwhile, um, it, horror still isn't as solidified over there, um, mm-hmm. but we start seeing the rise of the first real horror megastar uh, in the form of Lon Chaney.
2: Yes. Yay, yeah, 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 yeah.
0: As many folks know, he's a master character and makeup artist. Um, He comes to prominence by playing uh, an ape man in A Blind Bargain. He plays Quasimodo in Hunchback. He plays Eric in Phantom of the Opera, a mad scientist, vampire. He does a ton of creature work. Um, He he, he also does a bunch of melodramas at this time, uh, particularly with Todd Browning. They do a film together called The Unknown. Um, Cheney is like this murderer um, who has double thumbs that he needs to bind up because that's like how people recognize him when he's on the run. Um, he ends up getting like his arms removed so no one will recognize him. It's all very high drama, um, and he. Um, is does all this early work with Universal, of course, um, but then he ends up um jumping ship basically and going to MGM um for a while. And so Universal is has built up this reputation of having these sort of like frightening films, mm-hmm. and they have no one to to lead them now. So they bring in Conrad White um because of his work on Caligari and his other things on his resume and that's when he stars in the man who laughs in which he plays you know the man with the um the man the who, laughs. Laughs. The man who laughs, laughs with the glasgow smile which is what the joker was based off of
3: nice.
0: um and it's also uh at this time that maybe uh one of the most important films of the 20s comes out which is the cat and the canary Um, based on the Broadway play of the same name, it was kind of a spoof of like the old dark house mystery type of story. You know, a bunch of people are coming to a big mansion in the countryside to hear the reading of a will. There's something in the house that is like trying to scare them or hunt them down. And of course it turns out to be like the most unsuspecting person among them that's responsible for it and there's secret passageways everywhere and bodies falling out of closets and and such um so that movie is a huge hit um it spawns a lot of other similar uh, efforts throughout um the rest of the 20s including 7 footprints to satan which was directed by Benjamin Christensen, who also directed Haxon, Witchcraft Through the Ages. Yeah. <laughs> um, which was a really interesting film at the time because it's like faux documentary drama, mm-hmm. um, very unusual. And um, yeah, and there's tons of like repeat efforts of, of this kind of, story throughout uh, the rest of the 20s and so as these films are catching on most of them which were talkies um Murnau and now another director paul lenny find themselves like in a really prime position within hollywood to direct talking feature length horror movies and so people are just like Looking around, I'm like, okay, well, what's that going to be? Well, Dracula has been running on stage, you know, in New York and in London, like pretty much nonstop since the middle of the decade. Universal ends up getting the rights, and they're like, great. What if Cheney stars? And like, what if one of you guys direct? But before that could happen, F.W. Murnau, Lon Cheney, and Paul Lenny uh all died oh my god (laughs) (laughs) yeah and so nobody knew what was gonna happen with dracula and consequently what was gonna happen with like the rest of horror after they died well i bet you could guess what happens (laughs) um as we move into the 1930s and everyone's trying to figure this out um we circle once more back to Dracula, which um we, you know when Bella Lugosi was interviewed about playing Dracula on stage, which he did, you know, before the movie, mm-hmm. um he was often asked if he was worried about being typecast in mystery plays, because that's what Dracula was regarded at as the time. Interesting. Yeah. And then um after he starred in the film version of Dracula in 1931 um, and Frankenstein enters pre production at Universal. Everybody starts, you know, all the other studios start trying to find similar properties to cash in on the success of whatever Dracula appealed to. And that's when horror film as a term starts slipping into like the general populace. And that's the kind of story. So it's interesting that the play wasn't necessarily. Termed that way at the time, but after the movie, everybody was like, Yeah, no, horror.
1: It's interesting because I feel like even today, when we get sort of into ruts around horror, there's always like every 10 or 15 years, some new vampire movie um, Mm -hmm. that comes out and is like, Well, what if this? Remember this? You guys love this. (laughs) You guys love this shit. Yeah. What is it about the vampire? I don't know. Yeah. Something
0: to talk about in a future episode. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, even so, a big part of where this comes from is um, these kind of films that were being made um, really freaked out the British film board. And so, you know, they were like, oh, these films are so distasteful. And they wanted to give them a special rating. And the rating they settled on was H for horrific And so, you know, all of these other terms that had been used before, like macabre, gothic, weird tales, terror tales, monster, uh, shutter tales, like those were all available, but for whatever reason, they settled on horrific. And so that kind of sealed the deal as like what the genre as a whole was going to be called. Interesting. Yeah. And so Dracula's release in 1931 is basically the birth of this new cinematic genre um but when you watch the film now um i, I like it's dracula is fine mm-hmm. but like i think we we revisit it so much because of like its historical significance and not necessarily because like it's a fantastic film
1: right you know like well even the story itself i don't know if you've ever read dracula the book but um it's really weird. <laughs> the, yeah, the way it's it's paced and the different things that happen, which I feel like might come back to like it having been a serial story at one point. But um, mm-hmm. it's a real goofy, goofy story, in terms of like there are definitely three separate stories at least within it. Um, and I think right. it's hard to adapt. Yeah,
0: and yeah, because I think. I've never actually read it like cover to cover, but like a lot of adaptations cut out so much of the novel because it's like, no one knows what to do with it, you know, to make, yeah. to tell the whole thing. Um, Cause it is so weird, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so, so both Todd Browning, the director of Dracula and Paolo Lugosi, it's an eventual star. um were involved with the project because of Lon Chaney, who died in 1930. And Universal basically was like, well, we already have some wheels in motion for this movie, so, like, let's just see it through. Um, And they settled on Legosi basically because he was the cheapest actor available. Um, And... A lot of people have been like, well, why didn't they go with Conrad Veidt because they had, you know, already been working with him and he was so much more of a viable star. And the idea is that Universal did not expect Dracula to be all that popular.
2: Hmm.
0: Um, They weren't really expecting it to do well. Um, They, you know, it wasn't um, their big thing at that. At this point, was Phantom of the Opera, which they um, had just re-released as like a semi-talkie. And they weren't regarding Dracula anywhere near in league as that film. Um, and then Todd Browning um, kind of basically just like goes through the motions with directing Dracula. Um, it's the film looks good, and most people attribute that to um, the photographer Carl Freund, who did the the Golem and Metropolis, um, but basically like, aside from how things look and uh, Lugosi's performance it's like, well, then the rest of the film is really just average at best. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, some people have also argued that the simultaneous Spanish version of Dracula, which <laughs> was shot on the same sets from a translation of the same scripts is much more exciting. Um, this version was directed by George Melford and it's a lot more faithful to the novel um, but as such it's a lot um, slower Mm -hmm. and so people think that because Browning's version is more succinct that um, that's one of the reasons that helped it stick and of course because Lugosi's iconic performance you know sort of like catapulted the film into into something it, it wouldn't have been otherwise um, and I mean considering how much we still associate Dracula with Bella Lugosi is yeah. not that much of a stretch of the imagination
2: yeah
0: um, the one person at Universal who was genuinely enthused for Dracula though was Carl Lemmel. Um, Jr, who had just been promoted by his father, one of the founders of Universal. Um, and he was he was relatively interested in Dracula, I think, as a way to make his mark in his new position. But even he didn't know how radical the film was really going to be. Um, they just considered that it was going to be um, a proven property that would bring in a decent profit because everybody knew the novel and everybody knew the play but they didn't expect it to be anywhere near as successful as Phantom of the Opera or Cat in the Canary. Um, Plus the fact that, you know, as we discussed, Dracula is technically a remake of Nosferatu. (laughs) (laughs) Technically. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And So sort of, Dracula was also really different from what had come before in Hollywood. And this actually gets underlined by um, the epilogue to the play where Dr. Van Helsing um, comes out to address the audience and tells them that there are such things, you know, in the world. Because before, you know, with horror films, as they were now coming to be called, like. Everything was relatively explainable. The Phantom, you know, has a you know was malformed at birth. Mm-hmm. Um, the cat from *Cat in the Canary* is, you know, a disgruntled heir wearing a mask. Um, even like uh, the vampire from *London After Midnight*, which is played by Chaney, is really just somebody, you know, in a costume, like playing dress up for some other purpose. But with Lugosi and with Dracula, that was a real life, you know, in the world of the film, blood sucking reanimated corpse, mm-hmm. a real monster, and so this is what Hollywood had kind of been like avoiding before because they was like, oh well, that's that's something for European film. That's not meant for us, um, but. Universal takes the chance, not really thinking anything is going to happen. And it does. Dracula is a total box office um, smash. It gets like a $700,000 profit off of its like approximately like three forty dollars budget
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, when it opens in February of 1931. And so they're like, oh, well, all right. Mm-hmm. And so right after that, Universal's like, great. And they put Frankenstein into production and they somehow managed to get it out before the end of the year despite like a really troubled production Uh, they have to replace Robert Flory with James Whale Um, they have to replace uh, uh, Lugosi who was going to star as the creature Um, but um, there's conflicting reports apparently he turned it down Um, and but he later said that he wasn't actually like offered it properly or I don't know, and it's all very conflicting about what happened there. But the point is, he turns it down and um, James Whale comes in as the new director and he's like, okay, um, how about uh, Boris Karloff? And everybody's like, who the fuck is that? (laughs) (laughs) Because he's just like, before this, he was just like this bit player. that hadn't done a whole lot um but he gets chosen to play the monster under the makeup of jack p pierce um and it's history from there actually in the credits to frankenstein he's not even uh he doesn't even get his name in the billing um the the monsters just billed as like a question mark and it's not until like the end credits that Boris Karloff actually gets acknowledged for his performance. Um, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Especially because after this, like Boris Karloff is the name in horror, essentially. Um, And Frankenstein is also in comparison to Dracula, like a much more well-crafted, like considered film, Um, like, James Whale is clearly like putting thought into this film in a way that Todd Browning didn't necessarily do with Dracula. Um, And the way the film is designed and shot and um, acted, you know, like, cause uh, Whale's bringing in like some really strong talent for this movie um, that just makes it, stand out a bit more from Dracula from a creative standpoint.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, But all was not well because Dracula and Frankenstein start stirring up the first real um, rumblings of censors and those calling for censorship based off of what gets seen in the movie. Um, And Universal basically is like, oh, we totally hear what you're saying, but these movies made us a ton of money. And so um, we're just gonna keep doing this again and again, because, you know, Dracula could have been an anomaly, but Frankenstein basically proves to Universal that they have this whole new genre on their hands, complete with like stars, supporting actors, all of these sets that they still have, talent that they have on hand, whale, pierce, and a ton of material that they can just basically try to monopolize on this and monopolize on this new genre and make it theirs. And they do try that for a good while, but obviously like, other people want to cash in on that as well. Um, and so the you have situations where like Lugosi ends up and goes um, and does White Zombie and Murders in the Rue Morgue for like some lesser known Poverty Rose studios. And that kind of freaks Universal out for a bit, but essentially they're like, yeah, whatever. Like our real golden pair is Whale and Karloff. And so, they get reunited to do a lot more work. Uh, They do the old dark house together, um, which was like sort of the culmination of all old dark house movies. Um, It's also one of the earliest uh, horror comedies. uh, And it's also super gay. (laughs) Um, And... Yeah, so sort of... um, They're sort of the golden pair. They, they do a bunch of films together. Um, Karloff though starts to feel like um, Whale doesn't necessarily respect him all that much. There's some classist based tension between them um, to the point where Karloff uh, doesn't feel comfortable working with Whale anymore. So he turns down the offer to star in The Invisible Man. Um, in which his voice would have finally been heard on screen because, you know, he was playing all these monsters beforehand. And so the role ends up going to Claude Rains, um, well-spoken Englishman um, who whose voice in the film establishes him as one of these other new horror stars, <coughs> Lugosi and Karloff. And all the while you've got Lugosi who um, turned down the role of the monster or wasn't offered it or whatever, depending on how you hear it, like basically moaning that if he had been able to star in Frankenstein, he would have had a much better career just like Boris Karloff did. Um, and everybody's kind of like, okay, Bella, <laughs> calm down. I don't know how Bella Lugosi would have done as, monster because
1: at this point interesting thinking about them in other roles because it's just so iconic now like i can't imagine long cheney as dracula
2: exactly
0: like that would have been weird um so karloff you know basically has the much better career um he eventually um does finally get to talk on screen when he stars in um, The Mummy,
2: which is essentially
0: just like Dracula mixed with she and um, capitalizing on like uh, The Curse of King Tut, which was a big tabloid story at the time, um, you know, in the early 30s. Uh, Carl Frunn becomes a director at this point. um, And The Mummy is sort of like regarded as like the first um, conveyor belt horror movie done by hollywood like it was all modeled on like stuff that had worked before and they knew it was gonna work again it wasn't necessarily anything super unique story-wise it was just like let's change a few things let's put some recognizable faces on screen and let's make some money um but as i mentioned earlier competitions on the rise at this point every studio now in Hollywood is trying to capitalize on, um, what universal had going. Everybody wanted their own Dracula or Frankenstein, uh, Paramount does, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde adaptation, uh, with Frederick March, uh, who ends up winning an Oscar actually for that role. Um, first person to win for a role in a horror film. Um, they also try and do, uh, a more of like a second string monster thing with Island of Lost Souls with Charles Lawton. Um, and it's uh, basically a Dr. Moreau adaptation. Uh, Lugosi's also in that as a beast man kind of thing. Um, it ends up getting banned in the UK because it implies bestiality. So, uh, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, Warner Brothers jumps in. They were known um, for being like the realistic studio, so to speak, doing a lot of dramas, doing a lot of musicals. Uh, Michael Curtis is contracted with them. He does Dr. X and Mystery of the Wax Museum, which introduced Lionel Atwell as a new horror star uh, that Paramount would would steal relatively soon. Faye Ray is also introduced in these movies. Uh, She would, of course, go on to star in King Kong with RKO soon. Um, Also, Humphrey Bogart in a very early role in uh, The Return of Dr. X. So, yeah, RKO, they do um, King Kong, although. that wasn't necessarily seen as much of like an attempt to mimic Dracula and Frankenstein as much as like an attempt to mimic like the lost world and those other sort of like prehistoric creature adventure dramas like from Doyle and et cetera, et cetera. Um, they also do the most dangerous game, um, where the adaptation of the, you know, Count Zarath hunting man story on the remote island. Um, The portrayal of Count Zarath in that movie by Leslie Banks becomes um, a character that gets mimicked again and again and again in film. A lot of Bond villains are modeled after this character. Um, RKO also also does Son of Kong, um, which is probably horror's first disappointing sequel and basically kind of stopped them from doing horror until the 1940s Uh, mgm of course jumps on board they do freaks with todd browning um and they the film becomes noticeable and was regarded as a cult classic now because real sideshow performers were used in the film um it's also sort of like the first grindhouse film it gets shown as a um roadshow sort of shocker attraction. It's not all that um, popular at the time, although now it's it's studied as like a genre staple. Um, MGM tries a couple of other things. They do some Fu Manchu adaptations, Mask of the Vampire, uh, Devil Doll. Um, none of them quite live up to the success of Universal. And of course, like the lower budget studios do what they can. Like I said, Lugosi does White Zombie, um, which actually gets a small zombie trend that that goes on during the nineteen thirties uh, started there. They do Condemned to Live, Vampire Bat, um, this sort of idea of. Um, I don't know, semi like possession or like, you know, fear of ethnic cultures type of thing, because this was zombie as the idea of like voodoo connected zombie, you know, mm-hmm. not our modern idea of
2: right.
0: of the zombie.
3: Um, and then Universal, who was resistant,
0: um, to like follow-ups kind of starts changing their mind, you know, and they're like, okay, well, maybe we can we can try to like keep these characters alive, but it needs to be like with proper sequels. So they go back to James Whale, and they're like, okay, do whatever you want for a sequel to Frankenstein, and he ends up getting a dream cast. He gets Ernest Theisinger and he gets the great Elsa Lancaster, and he makes Bride of Frankenstein in 1935, which is an expansion of the original. It's also kind of a parody. It's like really emotional. It's it's very um, pervasive for the time and is a huge difference from the 1931 film, um, which just shows a, how quickly Hollywood was changing over those four years. And so that film does really, really, really well. But interestingly, um, Whale doesn't really work after Bride of Frankenstein. Um, he's he's kind of done with horror and doesn't really get presented with another opportunity. And so he just kind of fizzles, but Universal is like, okay, great. So sequels work. And um, they commission Dracula's daughter, uh, starring Gloria Holden, uh, Lugosi's not involved at all, and they start pouring their monies, um, into sequels, essentially. But the glut of sequels leads the, um, criers for censors and, um, the moralists to, uh, get even louder in their protestations and, um, with the rising tensions in Europe um, and the whispers of all of these strange Nazi crimes and everything going on in Germany, it becomes easier for the censors to kind of get their wish. And we start seeing a lot of films get banned in the latter half of the 1930s, um, to the point where there's kind of a hiatus in the latter half of the decade. You get a few things. There's a Sweeney Todd adaptation. Um in 36 but things are mostly pretty quiet um until we hit the end of the decade uh 1939 which was often called the greatest year for film <laughs> <laughs> um because that's when uh you get both gone with the wind and the wizard of oz coming out
2: mm-hmm. as
0: these like epic all-star movies Um, Plus you also had Stagecoach, um, like one of the greatest Westerns of all time and The Roaring Twenties, one of the best gangster films of all time. And horror also returns now in 1939 with um, uh, a re-release of Dracula and Frankenstein. And then a new film, Son of Frankenstein, uh, which is where Karloff plays the monster for the last time and Lugosi comes back to play Igor. Um, in what's considered one of his best roles. Um, and then Lionel Atwell is there and Basil Rathbone is there. And it's like, wow, okay, horror's back, essentially. Um, and then things move into uh, the 1940s, where basically everybody was concerned about uh, Nazis, which like legitimately so. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Mm, sorry. So, while the 1930s were
0: dealing with a lot of like these well-established, very familiar fictional monsters like Dracula and Frankenstein and mummies, the 1940s shifts and the horror market suddenly becomes a bit more internal. You know, at this point, Americans viewed themselves as being safe, as being separate from Europe, where everything was starting to descend into chaos. Um, Horror movies during the war were actually banned in Britain. And so America became basically the sole output for the genre. Um, And as we know, obviously, the US was not able to remain separate and it was not able to remain pure, I say in quotes, Um, duty and heritage um, regarding Europe creeps through a lot of American films at this time. Um, And that pull to the land of the nation's ancestors um, is eventually a driving force of what brings the US into war, not only with Japan, but with Germany. And so a lot of the horror films of the 1930s you see deal with these films of like roots coming through and men and women that become subject to like a primal animal identity that comes through something deeper, something older. Like you even see this in Pinocchio when the boys get turned into donkeys Mm -hmm. um, on Pleasure Island. But um it wasn't donkeys that people was were concerned about. It was wolves. Um, Adolf Hitler was or identified strongly with legends and symbolism associated with wolves. Um, his first name means noble wolf in Old German. He was known to use Herr Wolf as a pseudonym for himself, especially in his early political days. A number of Nazi headquarters were given names like Wolves Gulch and Wolves Lair and Man Wolf. Uh, The SS were referred to as Hitler's pack of wolves. Uh, His secretary, Joanna Wolf, known as the She Wolf, uh, Mm. said that he would often um, absentmindedly whistle who's afraid of the big bad wolf. Um, And so As such, a lot of propagandists in the 40s depicted Hitler as the big bad wolf. Um, So it should probably be no surprise to us then that Universal chose the wolf as their sort of next big specter of menace in the early 1940s, Um, which they did, because after Sada Frankenstein, sort of brought horror back they needed to do something else something new they tried bringing back the invisible man as well uh one of Vincent Price's early roles they also tried uh, bringing the mummy back and things were going okay and um they were like well something's just not quite popping yet and then they stumble upon a fresh face for horror Creighton Cheney. <laughs> the son of their once uh, megastar um, who goes under the stage name Lon Chaney Jr. Oh. Uh, he had just played Lenny in an adaptation of Of Mice and Men, and so Universal brings him on board and casts him as Larry Talbot in The Wolfman, which is, uh, of course, a film about an American man uh, was kind of a schlub who gets bitten by a Romani man uh, in wolf form and uh, is eventually beaten to death by with a silver cane by his father, who's played by Claude Rains. Um, the movie was written by Kurt Sidemark, who had actually fled the Nazis in 1937. Um, and so as much as it was a symbolic effort about what was going on in the world at that time, um, it also, in the world of film, proved that Universal could still found new horror franchises. Um, that is one of my favorites from the classic era, because I just love werewolves. Yes, you do. <laughs> I do. I do. Um, we forget, though, like, I, all, I always forget that, like, in that, in the Wolfman, like, there's no, it's not silver bullets or anything. Mm -hmm. It's just, um, it just happens to be that it's a silver cane.
2: Right.
1: Interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So Chaney Jr. now is the new star and he's sort of like inherited the mantle from his father. And he sort of makes his rounds and plays all of like the big ones. He plays the monster and goes to Frankenstein. He plays the mummy in the mummy's tomb. He plays, uh, the count and son of Dracula. Um, the only movie and monster they don't give him oddly enough is, um, his father's old role of the Phantom in the new Technicolor version of Phantom of the Opera.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: He gets passed over. Um, and it's given to Claude Rains to play, uh, because, um, Universal decides, you know, the role is too important. They don't want anyone. They don't want it messed up. So, um, kind of odd. You would think, from a marketing perspective alone, they'd want to give it to Cheney Jr. But right. That um, is an
1: interesting uh, take on the that Claude Rains adaptation. Um, yeah, because that's the one where. Christine they all survive at the end and Christine like walks away from both of them right like that's I think um, so yeah it's that one so it's interesting
0: that is we should uh maybe cover that one yeah so yeah because that one is yeah you're right it's it's very that one's very melodramatic mm-hmm. um and not like so heavy on the horrific elements even, um, or like the violence, like even the silent 1925 version probably is, is more like horror than the 1943 one. Um, but, you know, wartime constraints even hit universal. They kind of um, stuck to doing like more low effort horror um, in the early parts of the decade a lot of serious efforts the invisible man got a lot of movies the mummy got a lot of movies they did a series of movies about paula the ape woman <laughs> okay yeah um but all of them sort of pinpointing this cultural fear of man and woman overcome by base or primal instincts that led them to disaster um Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce end up jumping over to Fox to continue playing Holmes and Watson. They do a 12 um modern day set Holmes mysteries um, that were all directed by War William Neal, except for one of them. Um, and all of these also kind of have supernatural elements to them um, that eventually lead to like spin-offs where um the monsters are, you know, the focus and like mm-hmm. Holmes isn't really involved at all. Um, there's a couple more movies with um, Gail Sondergaard, who plays a black widow in the Spider-Woman, and the spider woman and spider woman strikes back. Uh, Cheney, Jr. does a bunch of inner sanctum mysteries where he's like playing a college professor. Um, black friday gets made at this point night monster she-wolf of london um but all of them basically pale in comparison to frankenstein meets the wolfman
2: mm-hmm.
0: which is a 1943 dual sequel to ghost of frankenstein and the wolfman in which lugosi is playing the monster and cheney jr comes back to play talbot And it's a pretty big hit, which leads to them making uh, house of Frankenstein, which brings Dracula played by John Carradine into the picture. Um, Lugosi gets kicked out at this point. Glenn strange plays the monster and then Karloff comes back to play a mad scientist, but he departs again. in the next sequel house of Dracula. So a lot of in and out, but all of these movies do pretty well. Um, but they don't really—they're not—they're not really scary, or they don't make an effort to be mm-hmm. what would have been scary, you know, in the nineteen forties. Like that element has definitely been lost from these movies, and what we end up with is one of the um, greatest horror comedies, uh, probably of all time: Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein.
1: They uh, Also, just recently showed that at the Colonial. Did so. they? <laughs> yeah.
0: I love. That. I used to watch that all the time growing up with my cousins. Um. So yeah. So most people know this movie. Um, the vaudeville comedians Lou Abbott and Bud Costello are brought in. You know, they were Universal um, signed. They meet the Wolfman and the Monster, and. Um, Uh, Dracula, who once again played by Legosi, actually his only the second and last time he ever actually plays Dracula. Hmm. He plays him in the original 1931 movie and he plays him in and Costello uh, Meet Frankenstein and that's it. So this movie does really well and then they try a couple more of these horror comedy things where they meet the invisible man, where they meet the mummy, where they meet Jekyll and Hyde, but they're not nearly as funny um, and It's very clear that at this point, you know, those days from the 1930s, like when Bride of Frankenstein was so like meticulously put together, like that's gone. Horror has basically like eaten itself alive and there's no where to go. Mm -hmm. And the parodies in particular, the Abbott and Costello are sort of like the final nails in the coffin for this era of horror films. And so these characters of Dracula and the Wolfman and the mummy and the monster, like they just become sequel fodder. Um, They're no longer (laughs) scarifying. (laughs) They're no longer scary. They're definitely not terrifying. Um, And it kind of. Ends up that the B studios um, have a bit more success at this point. They start signing a lot of the old figures to do a bunch of movies for them because, um, they're seeing that the traditional monster movies aren't doing so well at this point. Fox and Paramount start doing a couple of these movies. Uh, Monogram keeps Legosi on retainer. They make him do a couple more zombie movies. Um, and then RKO has the idea to hire Val Luton to produce some small scale pictures that are a bit more polished, a bit more poetic, a bit more atmospheric, and these end up paying off really well. And so this clutch of movies gives us things like cat people. And I walked with a zombie and ghost ship and the body snatcher and bedlam. And these movies are a bit more adult, a bit more sophisticated. Um, and most people think that these movies worked better and did better in the 40s is because they were still serious about being scary in a way that you know Universal had basically given up on for all of their movies. Um, and Most of them, not all of them, most of them actually have a fair amount of gore to them um, that's used, you know, really well. Um, Cat People is like a master class on how to do suspense. Um, Leopard Man does a lot of uh, good camera tricks that still get studied to this day. and all of these films that RKO is doing, that Val Lewton is mostly producing or directing, all have to do with like animal urges taking over the human form, um, and sort of the psychological terror that comes along with that. So it's it's this fear, this pervading fear, right? Like about these horrible things that are happening in the world that like. I don't know. I think it's just like people try. were trying to process how humans could do that to each other. Mm-hmm. And the answer was that it was inhuman to do it. Like it was, it was animal to treat each other that way, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, MGM tries a little bit of this as well. They obviously had Victor Fleming on retainer. He had directed both Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz. And so they, uh, have him do a big budget remake of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde uh, that stars Spencer Tracy and gets all the bells and whistles. Ingrid Bergman's in it, Lana Turner's in it. It does pretty well. So um, they also do a remake of The Lodger. Um, They do Gaslight, Picture of Dorian Gray. Um, A lot of like supernatural films at this time actually and particularly actually right after the end of world war ii you start getting a matter of life and death the ghost and mrs muir um as well as lewis allen's the uninvited Mm -hmm. um which is um sort of like a homage to luton very groundbreaking influential lesbian adjacent ghost story Mm -hmm. um and very like, uh, very much the model for all these stories we're now so familiar with, where nice people buy this beautiful remote house and then get pestered by spirits, and so they have to figure out what is causing the haunting. Um, really great movie. We also get it this time in Dead of Night from Ealing Studios, which is the grandfather of the horror anthology story. Um, Most people remember it for the uh, ventriloquist sequence or the one about the haunted mirror. Um, It's really influential for the way it used its frame narrative and the way it did twists to the story. Um, But much like in the 1930s, in the late 1940s, horror just sort of completely dies out again without warning. Um, And with the 30s, most people think it was because of, you know, the censorship. In the 40s, it's really not clear why it happened. Um, Some think it's because the Abbott and Costello films made it like really difficult for people to take monsters seriously, but that film didn't released until 1948 when the genre was already like totally like withered Mm -hmm. some people think that there were too many sequels at this point so like audience it was too difficult to like surprise audiences with the same monsters over and over again but basically like between 1947 and 1951 there's almost no horror films from that period that get made
2: um
0: there's like very few exceptions, like The Creeper, um, which is like a mad science film, and no one's really sure why it happened. Like, it could be overproduction, it could be, um, because everything just felt like copycat films, um, or just that after World War II, like, people were already (laughs) horrified. Exactly, and people had seen real-life atrocities, real-life genocides, um, so, like, These largely like Gothic-esque horrors just didn't hold the same weight as they did.
1: Interesting. Beforehand. Yeah. And something I was thinking about, and I'm sure we'll go into uh in part two of this, though, is like after World War II, I feel like you start to get the rise of very human, non-supernatural, non-gothic villains in the form of uh becoming slashers and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because that's what the war like forced everybody to realize, right? Is that, mm-hmm. you know, all these really evil things were just being done by people. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but um, while horror kind of takes the back step, like film noir really comes to prominence in the 1940s, which, you know, noir films cover a lot of dark subjects as well. Um, and, you know, there were some films that were sort of regarded as like crossovers between horror and noir, or like that sort of kept horror alive, like Out of the Past or The Spiral Staircase. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like for the most part, straight up horror is is just gone. Um, and anything that that was happening at this point or in, in these noir films is Always about like a looming sort of evil. Like everything's always very gloomy. Everything's always very foreboding and full of dread. And so most people regard these films as the embodiment of you know, what people had experienced over the last decade and um, the atrocities that had occurred and how these, you know, horrendously wolf-like creatures, um could have been responsible for so much damage so like noir was sort of doing horror's job in a less direct way while the genre was figuring out essentially like what is going to happen with it next like what what does it mean to be a horror film in Mm -hmm. the 1950s basically and what it meant to be a, a horror film in the 1950s is that uh you were basically going to be a creature feature. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, so, so the 1950s in general, right? It's post-war. The image that everybody wants to believe is the reality is like back to business normality. We've got, you know, fantastically well-planned, well-kept suburban communities, you know, two-story houses and 2.5 kids, and there's two cars in the garage, and there's all kinds of new labor-saving devices, and everything's new and shiny and perfect and quintessential. We did our part, now everything's gonna be fine. But of course, as we know, the 50s also brings about the beginning of the Cold War, um, the Red Scare, rampant fear of nuclear warfare, uh, fears concerning juvenile delinquency, fears concerning the rise of rock and roll as a musical genre. Um, And no one is really all that interested in horror at the beginning of all of this. Um, No one was really all that scared anymore by, you know, Lon Chaney Jr. in a suit made out of yak hair, Mm -hmm. you know, growling at you on the screen. Um, Because like you were saying, the things that scared people now were very real and very human and, familiar looking faces, faces that developed the atom bomb and the death camp and mad scientists whose, you know, atrocities against humankind would have like, that put, you know, Victor Frankenstein and Dr. Moreau to shame. Because um, it was a completely changed world. Um, Military action from World War II left 40 million people dead and millions more exposed to um, man's inhumanity towards man and having to live with with what happened afterwards. And so people had their own horror stories and weren't really interested in seeing them played out on the big screen. Um, And what comes about from this is horror that comes from the beyond. One of the earliest known examples is The Thing from Another World, which came out in 1951 and uh, is basically um, the prototype for all science fiction horror movies (laughs) of the 1950s and beyond. Um, It's now regarded as a classic, although its remake by John Carpenter in the 80s is considered a superior version of the story um but it's a tale of um you know scientists uh in an isolated location dealing with an extraterrestrial threat to Mm -hmm. to mankind um and you know things get out of hand and they you know there's mistrust and there's uh There's a witch hunt that goes on and it's all very symbolic of what was happening with McCarthyism and et cetera, et cetera. Um, It was very similar to another movie at the time, The Man from Planet X, which was actually rushed into production to come out before the thing from another world. Um, And basically what both of those movies did is, Invent a whole new subgenre of horror and a whole new set of tropes that would soon become cliches, much like the Universal movies did in the 1930s. And so now what we start seeing in a bunch of movies is um, scientists and professional, um, you know, military. Uh, men and women who are like quick thinking and they're smart and they they don't get rattled by the threat. They like, a, you know, approach it as a problem that needs to be solved and can be solved by like good old fashioned American science. And that everybody's always very sensible in, in these movies. Um, and so these like very straight arrowed characters are like pretty much all you find in um, the first half of the 1950s populating these kinds of movies. Um, mm-hmm. and Kenneth Toby is a big breakout star for these. He stars in a thing from another world. Um, and this, as this sort of matter of fact character that gets mimicked over and over again. Um, and the big theme is, yeah, some sort of alien or threat from beyond that could topple the peace or the stability of earth and sometimes it's like a big giant robot uh like in the day the earth stood still or sometimes it's a giant squid like 20,000 leagues under the sea Mm -hmm. but most of the time it's some sort of otherworldly alien type creature um And even when you did get films at this point, you know, in the 50s, where um, there wasn't anything otherworldly going on, like in The Incredible Shrinking Man, there is always stuff like a giant type of menace, like he has to go up against the big spider or the cat, you know, when he gets shrunk. So there was there was this idea of dealing with something like bigger than you know, a human-sized threat. Um, And that's likely linked to the idea that, you know, the 50s were um, a really like innovative and creative time. And, you know, all this new technology was popping up that was making life easier and giving people so much more free time. And it was also fast and everybody was like, well, what does this mean for us as a society? Um, and that was also happening in the film world as well, but oddly enough, like, all of that new technology was considered a bit lowbrow to experiment with, and so the horror film kind of gets relegated to, like, the B-movie category, Mm -hmm. Um, and because, you know, all of this, like, large-scale technological production like color and cinemascope and 3d and all of that like that was all um regarded as kind of like gimmicky and um a way to like drag people uh, out of their homes into the movies because the big thing on the rise in the 50s was tv and people wanted to stay home and watch their new tv sets Mm -hmm. so they were like okay well how do we keep people coming to to theaters, let's try all these like weird gimmicky things um, and see if those work, but let's not invest too much time in them in case they totally bomb. And so like big stars and big names and big directors, they get reserved for like dramas and musicals that studios are sure are gonna bring like those older middle-class crowds. And so the main audience of the horror film becomes the teenager. And the main venue for the horror film becomes the drive-in because most teenagers didn't really care about production value or character development or plot integrity. They just wanted to see two movies for the price of one and maybe some goofy looking monsters and make out with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, the American dream. Teenager shit. Hot girl shit. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we start getting lots of films uh, at this period that have to do with radiation. In fact, pretty much every major sci-fi horror film of the decade involves radiation one way or another. Them, Godzilla, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, um, or like some kind of radiation-based science where, you know, if things aren't being like blown up, you're getting shrunk down like shrinking mm-hmm. man or the fly. Usually it was like existing life forms that were transformed into monsters because it was easier for filmmakers to photograph them with like blue screen or create them in model form. Um, but otherwise you would just do something like a man in a suit playing the monster, which you know a lot of people knock 50s movies more, for, you know, you can see the zippers or you can see the seams or whatever but a guy in a suit was used like all the way up to aliens at least like the xenomorph was played by an actual person mm-hmm. so it worked um most 50s movies are you know regarded as kind of schlocky today um but the technology at the time is about as cutting edge as it could get and um it it works pretty well in getting people away from television to come back to the movies. Ooh. This is when Ray Harryhausen emerges as um, an animator, you know, with Beast of 40,000 Fathoms, uh, where he makes his radioactive dinosaur. Uh, this is also where, um, off of that film, we get Goja, uh, or the first Godzilla movie from Japan, which spawns the whole subgenre of daikaiju films that are still going strong mm-hmm. to this year godzilla
2: versus Kong. yeah um and so most of these films though uh
0: are in are in the 50s rather are standalone movies mm-hmm. um Godzilla is kind of the one exception where it gets a lot of sequels. And um, that was like a, that was honestly not because of a, from a storytelling perspective or anything. It was just budgetary constraints Um, and, and everything that went into that. You get some mass invasion films at this point, obviously, um, War of the Worlds gets its, a uh, big adaptation in 1953. Uh, them has giant ants invading. Um, ants descended from the first ants irradiated by the atomic blast.
2: You know, the ants.
0: The ants, as it were. It was, I've never found ants scary, but okay. I guess if they were giant, it would be kind of terrifying. And then you start seeing films that involve human mutations, hideous sun demon, the fly, Neanderthal man. Um, this kind of helped get a couple of the, like the remaining um, old school stars back in the business, like Lon Chaney Jr. comes back and the Instructable Man, because, you know, he wears like the old style kind of makeup to play like a mutated Rampager and that one. Uh, Universal is doing a lot of work with their um, producer director team, William Allen and Jack Arnold. They do, it came from outer space. They do tarantula, the monolith monsters, um, these sort of like disaster movies that um, were natural phenomena sort of get turned into monsters. And of course they also do the creature from the black lagoon, um, which, uh, involves a fish human type gill man. He's called a living fossil. He's, you know, the shape of water before the shape of water. And um he's also the last addition to like Universal's copyrighted franchise monsters, like very late in the game. Actually, there's only two sequels to the original, but still a very popular monster to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, and this uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon is kind of unique because it it does, you know, have that sort of clipped matter of fact style of the sci-fi horror movies of the day, but it's also very poetic. It's also kind of sexualized and feels a bit more classic Mm -hmm. in the sense of, um, of the older movies from the thirties, um. So it's kind of a standout in that sense. And then right around the middle of the decade, the genre starts to shift a little bit. Um, and these smaller grindhouse studios, like American International Pictures, um, start uh targeting like that exclusively teen audience in the sense that teenagers become the heroes and the main focus of horror movies at this point and so we start seeing less of these like hero in uniforms and we start seeing more films where the grown-ups are kind of useless and it's only the misunderstood kids that know how to combat the menace like in invasion of the saucerman or the blob like it's up to yeah.
1: Yeah, it's up to the kids. Did you ever go to that
2: screening of the block? I
1: have not. It's always like that's it's in the summer is when they do it. Um, but it's like a bit. I should go at some point because it truly it's like a big thing. Like the entire town like participate. Like they shut down the road so that people can run out of the theater. And, that's crazy. Yeah,
0: Blobfest.
1: Blobfest.
0: Yeah, well, that's the one where the where the kids know what's up. Yeah um yeah and so this is sort of becomes AIP's market um and they aren't super concerned with like plausibility um and they just sort of want to make these fun goofy teen movies and so basically they give carte blanche to a young producer director named Roger Corman Mm -hmm. who uh jumps onto uh the big screen with um a couple of early projects uh it conquered the world not of this earth and attack of the crab monsters and these are very like unashamedly lurid films they're entertaining they're kind of quick-witted they don't like always necessarily live up to their titles they're not the most intelligent movies but they're fast they have a good like engaging sense to them and they come to dominate uh, the latter half of 1950s horror and this shift from scientific experts and military men to the home front which also paves the way for um maybe the most influential movie of the 1950s and one of horror's most influential movies overall Invasion of the Body Snatchers yes yeah um which comes out in 1956 directed by John Siegel and plays with this nightmare idea of parents and authority figures being mind controlled by martians and Um, really sort of like sets this idea off as a whole new subgenre you know the film is set in a small town where people start experiencing this strange delusion that their friends and their relatives have somehow changed and so you know it's been interpreted as like a a reading of um, McCarthyism and conf- communist infiltration into America and an allegory for witch hunting and red baiting and basically America turning against itself and destroying itself. Um, it's a very psychological film. Um, it draws on a lot of old like doppelganger stories um, like William Wilson, which is a Poe story. There's some um, interesting coding that the snatchers are maybe even be vampiric or demonic in nature. Um, And however you wanna read the film, basically uh, it sets a modern myth that horror has drawn on like time and time again ever since, which is this idea of small town America um, that has nasty secrets underneath. Mm -hmm you know, penetrated from without and then eaten alive from within by the monstrous is something we see again and again, whether it's Jerusalem's lot or Twin Peaks or Crockett Island. Yes. Um,
1: Yeah. (laughs) Nice uh, bringing that back to.
0: We're going to circle. We're going to circle. (laughs) (laughs) And so um, while all of that is going on, there's also this question of like well what is the place of the traditional gothic and most viewpoints were that it died with house of frankenstein in 1945 and it was not resurrected until the curse of frankenstein in 1957 Um, but some people kind of like dip their toes into the Gothic, like as early as 1951, when you get son of Dr. Jekyll, Universal gets Boris Karloff back on their payroll for like a couple roles and like the Black Castle and Strange Door. Uh, There's a remake of Mystery of the Wax Museum um, in 1953 that um, stars Vincent Price um, as a, wheelchair-bound maniac, basically. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Um, And so these do okay, obviously not great in comparison to kind of what else was going on, Um, but people are trying throughout the decade. There's another um, Rue Morgue attempt. Um, There's a interesting sort of contemporary Gothic mashup um in 1956 which the search for Bridie murphy which is based off of um the Bridie murphy case that came to prominence in the 1950s um which was about a hypnotist who claimed that he could regress um, this woman this um, housewife to her previous life as an irish Mm -hmm. serving girl that like captivated the nation And so that was, that was adapted a couple of times. Um, Universal even tried to do some like new gothic kind of monsters. They did um, call to Cobra, which is like a snake woman type thing. Um, They brought the she creature back. Uh, They did um, the leech woman and the wasp woman about like, older matronly type figures like killing people to maintain their youth. Mm -hmm. Um, Bella Lugosi ends up teaming up with uh, Ed Wood um, for a number of sci-fi horror melodrama films. They um, end up making what is considered the worst movie ever made, Plan 9 from Outer Space. But uh, Lugosi dies at the start of production and isn't able to finish it. Um, And so there's kind of these weird moments where like the old stars are getting showcased, um, but no one really knows what to do with them or what the place of the Gothic is. Um, Like Britain has a bit more luck with it because um, this is when Hammer films, kind of founds itself as a studio. It starts on very small scale. They do um, a couple of things in the thirties, and then um, they really break big with Terrence Fisher's Spaceways and um, Val Guest's Quartermass mass experiment, um, which is really big and prompts uh, some sequels and some knockoffs and, okay, they have a little bit of traction. Um, And this is when uh, Milton Subotsky, an American producer, goes to Hammer, seeing their recent success, and he pitches the idea of remaking Frankenstein in color, and ideally by bringing back Boris Karloff for the lead. So Hammer Films is basically like, okay, 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 and they pay him off for the idea, and then they take the project in a completely different direction. So instead of doing a remake, they end up with The Curse of Frankenstein, which you know, gives them the rights to all the original characters and such, but is nothing at all like um, the original 1931 film, essentially. Um, They basically just take familiar material and do their own thing with it. it's color now, there's lots of gore, um, which becomes a new sort of staple of the Gothic genre. Um, Blood spurts and severed limbs and and whatnot. But it's also a very like, well made film, it's costumes are good, it's cinematography, the music, the art direction. Um, But probably its most lasting impact is that it stars, uh, soon to be uh, horror icons, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Um, Cushing is uh, Victor Frankenstein Lee plays the monster because um, basically everybody else demanded more money, Um, but they both sort of make huge impressions on the general audience and become indispensable to the future of, of horror. So then they're like, okay, well, if that works, then we better start trotting out the other old monsters again. So then we get horror of Dracula, Uh, with Cushing as Van Helsing and Lee with um, eight minutes of screen time as Dracula. And this is when Dracula becomes sort of like the sexual version of Dracula, (laughs) Um, thanks to Lee's performance that definitely did not exist, like with Lugosi or or Cheney Junior or anyone like that. like Horror of Dracula introduces like what would soon become the horse uh, staples for this genre, which is a lot of like plunging necklines and,
2: mm-hmm. you
0: know, busty women who are like really drawn to Dracula as much as they're terrified of him and, and whatnot. So that also does really well. Hammer does a ton of other remakes of the classics, The Mummy, Hound of the Baskervilles, Phantom of the Opera, etc., etc um and then of course they start getting imitated and mimicked when people see how well they're doing um jimmy sangster goes off and does his own thing for blood of the vampire and a new jack the ripper movie um uh, monty baker and robert berman um two producers they bring in cushing for flesh and the fiends they um remake, Greed of William Hart. Uh, It's all based off of the success of uh, Hammer's new slew of remakes. Um, We also get uh, some quartermast knockoffs at this point in time. Fiend Without a Face, First Man in Space, uh, Grip of the Strangler, all those kinds of things. Um, Jacques Turnier goes over to the UK after his time working with Val Luton, and he ends up doing Night of the Demon, which just becomes very influential for the genre. But then back at AIP, um, a producer, Herman Cohen, he gets the idea. To combine these two like major themes of the 50s, the atomic age horror with the teens and like the classic monster revival. And so he produces these two new films: I was a teenage werewolf and I was a teenage Frankenstein. And so that creates kind of this own new mini-trend where these two subgenres are now mixing together. Um, those do so well that Cohen goes over to Britain for Anglo amalgamated because, um they have been wanting to do some horror, so they hire him to to help make that work. and he does um horrors of the Black Museum with Michael Goo, which is sort of um, a, I guess it's a Dr. Jekyll thing. like he he drinks the potion and he transforms mm-hmm. and Yeah, 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 yeah. They work together for a couple more movies as well. Uh, And uh, it's uh, Cohen that ends up um, providing the funding for uh, young director Michael Powell to do a very jolting and unnerving um, film about psychosis, Peeping um, Tom, right at the end of the decade. But, Basically, um, the Teenage Monster boom is is still what what grips the 50s. Um, After the success of I Was a Teenage Werewolf and Teenage Frankenstein, you get Daughter of Dr. Jekyll, uh, Frankenstein's Daughter, Blood of Dracula, Teenage Zombies. Um, Universal is looking at all of this and they're like, okay, like, we have to get our properties back in business. So they do Return of Dracula, which sets the monster in a contemporary 50s setting and um, sort of brings all of that old style European stuff to America. Um, They try a vampire Western, Curse of the Undead, but that doesn't do so well. Um, But they do, managed to stay relevant thanks to um, a producer director they have on retainer uh, William Castle. Uh, He comes to prominence by by casting Vincent Price in House on Haunted Hill and The Tingler, Mm -hmm. Um, both of which do very well. Castle sticks with the genre, um, but most people think he peaked with The Tingler and of course Vincent Price very much also stuck with the genre.
2: Yeah. And so,
0: it was interesting to see sort of these monsters returning at the end of the decade, um, because mostly like after the twenties and thirties, foreign horror was really only done um, by like one-off people like Carl Dreyer doing Vampire, um, Henri Cluza doing Diabolique, um, which is the film that would inspire Psycho. But now with all this like interchange between Britain and America doing these teen monster films, like horror was becoming way more international as a field. Um, And even beyond just Europe as well. Jermaine uh, Robles in Mexico directs The Vampire, which is basically a, a version of Dracula meets Son of Dracula. Um, and his film sparks a whole new slew of Mexican horror with like Aztec mummies and brain sucking alchemists and wrestlers that fight monsters. Um, Ricardo Freida in Italy gets inspired to make I Vampiri um, and Kautiki. Um, Georges Franju in France uh, directs Eyes Without a Face, <clears throat> which is a very like pulpy, poetic, um, influential movie. Uh, Gerardo de Leon in the Philippines, directs Terror as a Man, uh, Germany, like there's, there's a lot of like mad science movies in the 50s, The Head, Horrors of Spider Island, Dr. Mabuse becomes big in Germany again. And so, basically, the 50s is able to avoid whatever happened in the 30s and 40s, where horror died off in the second half of the decade, and it mm-hmm. kept it alive, and made it even bigger, which meant that going into the 1960s, horror was everywhere, and it was soon going to turn from looking at external threats to internal threats,
1: Ooh. I which feel like I it's a good tantalizing uh yes i was gonna to say and part think two
0: <laughs> we will save that for part two that's
1: exciting yeah. there's a lot to process with it and i feel like each little thing could even like we could be like oh we could do a whole episode on that
0: <laughs> yeah it's crazy it's crazy and especially like i don't know like getting the foundations of it all it's like oh mm-hmm. my gosh there's so much here Yeah. There's so much that happened in the 50s. Yeah.
1: I'd say like one of the big interesting things for me hearing all this is just find out that like basically you know the concept of movies and talkies and that sort of thing like really um, like that was sort of the home for horror because everything else had other mediums. um, Yeah. At the time and they were kind of what was making that medium popular.
0: Yeah. So it's like it's kind of like the movies have always been home for horror mm-hmm. you know like even more so than any other genre or any other format to tell a horror story mm-hmm. it's like i don't know it's very interesting isn't it
1: yeah no i find it's it really very interesting exciting. so
0: closely entwined
1: yeah so so yeah
0: um be sure to check out the 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 posts if you haven't yet to mm-hmm. follow along um as of this recording, it's up up through the fifties is is on the website, and thanks. Nice. The rest will be on the way as we move towards spooky Halloween. Spooky Halloween. We'll also be doing a a second episode shortly. We'll we'll do the sixties up to present day, mm-hmm. and um. Probably by that point, we'll also have some thoughts to share about Halloween kills.
1: Yeah, that might uh, make it into the the present day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, hopefully we'll have thoughts to share about Halloween Kills by then. <laughs> I can't imagine we wouldn't. Yeah, awesome.
0: Cool. But if you have thoughts, uh, whether it be about Halloween Kills or whether it be about um, <clears throat> the history of horror films or some of these early films and directors and figures that we mentioned in this episode, you should share those thoughts with us.
2: Yeah.
0: Um,
1: how could they do that? They can do that by emailing us at splatterchatter669 at gmail.com, sending us a tweet or DM or what have you on uh, Twitter at splatterchatter666 minus all the vowels. Um, you can also DM us or follow us on Instagram at splatterchatter. I always forget if it's a uh, because I, I had to change the Instagram. Hold on. It is. Oh, we
0: changed the Instagram.
1: It is splatter underscore chatter. There we go. On uh, Instagram. And then there's also Tumblr, .tumblr splatterchatter.tumblr.com. And then of course you can leave comments on the blog at splatter-chatter.com.
0: Amazing. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. I think this is going to close out episode 91. Excellent stuff. Yeah. And uh, be on the lookout for episode 92 shortly. Mm -hmm. And until that point, we want to remind you that during prime spooky season, you must keep up the creep. And for now we will say au revoir. adiós and that's it.